Emergency medicine extract with Sanjay and Mike. And action! Here we are, ready to tape April. April 2022, and we've got a killer month this month. It's a little bit longer than usual. We've got 57 abstracts. Yeah, 57 right? abstracts. Uh, Ken and Swami have, I think... Well, they're reviewing the new edition of Modern Epidemiology, so it's like 2,000... It's a little bit longer. I think their segment, which you typically run like, what, like 10, 15 minutes? This yeah. time it's now, running about, what is it, 175 minutes? Now, 57, like 57 abstracts may seem like a lot, but know that 56 of them are quick takes, and they <laughs> go in 30 seconds, so... Yeah. It's actually going to be a short recording this month. Right. But, but also, they should know that we speak really, really quickly this one. So they may have to slow down the playback, which could paradoxically lengthen it. So it's really like, like maybe you, it's just going to. Like you should be able to do the record player. Remember yeah. that? You could like adjust the speed of it. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, maybe which we should put this one out on vinyl. <laughs> put it out on vinyl. Me, I've been buying vinyl, thank you very much, lately because. Sanjay got my wife a record player for Christmas. Thank you. That's yeah. great. Now yeah. I get to spend lots of money to buy scratched uh, albums from thrift stores. Yay! No, it's actually quite fun. But uh, there's not 57 abstracts. No. If you're listening to this on April 1st, perhaps you get the joke. April Fool's Day. Happy April Fool's Day, everyone. You know, considering. I don't think I've ever really been into April Fool's, to be honest. Because I love, you know joking around yep. and having fun and pranks. Yep. Generally, I like that kind of thing. April Fool's, I never... Have you gotten into that? I See, the thing is that pretty much every day is April Fool's Day to me because of the whole pranks and stuff like that. Because of the completely... kids, because you're kids? Yeah, well, just because of just the way I am, you know? I'm just like always messing around doing nonsense. So April Fool's, I don't think I would surprise anybody. They'd just be like... Wait, what's going on? This is just a normal day. What you're just in fact, it's ridiculous. probably then the you know the the cards are stacked against you yeah. because they're they're on the lookout. They're on the look. They're alerted. It's a good point. It's a good point. So maybe yeah, no, I haven't really ever really done any elaborate April Fools' gags or anything yeah. like that. But I do like it. And if anyone has a great April Fools' gag that they've ever perpetrated or been the victim of, I'd love to hear about it victim of yeah especially if it had something to do with yeah, medicine I, I, I agree i've had some pretty good gags that i have sort of concocted in my mm. life but never on april fools i don't think what's yeah. the, the origin Challenge of accepted. april fools do you have any idea i, I think it's a biblical reference <laughs> i don't think that's true i think so i'm pretty sure <laughs> <laughs> this is this this feels april foolsy in and of itself yeah we'll with the leave. emphasis on the fool <laughs> In this case. <laughs> well, joke's on you. It's not even April. It's February, and the Super Bowl is coming up. And, you know, I was just listening to the EMA from February, wherein it was occurring in December, and I was describing how I was going to go to the Super Bowl. Unless. The only thing that could have prevented me from going to the Super Bowl was if the Rams were in the Super Bowl because ticket prices would be too expensive. And at the time, I noted that the Rams were sucking. But look at what has happened. They turned it all around. They found a way to prevent you from going to the Super Bowl. And they Bowl. screwed me over. <laughs> Thank you very much. I did go to the NFC Championship game uh, last weekend when they played the Niners, and it was great. But those tickets, which were incredibly expensive, as it were, are one-sixth the price of Super Bowl tickets, which average, you know, just over 7000 No, No, not average. The lowest ticket the price nosebleed. is $7,000. So basically what I'm saying is, 
Mel needs to give me a huge raise. <laughs> yeah, and effective immediately. Right. right. Yeah, like immediately. Or a $7,000 Christmas bonus yeah. in the form of a Super Bowl. Ticket. But I'm not going by myself, right? Oh, so, so I we need, need two have, tickets. We need two tickets. So I need 14 extra thousand dollars. So I've got my hand out. Anybody wants to fill it with large sums of cash, that would be appreciated. All right. So <laughs> in reality for this month, April foolery aside... We have 20 abstracts Indeed. to go through. And I know last month, or I think it was the month before, you know, there is a lot of COVID publications mm-hmm. coming out. I don't have any this month. I have uh, one sort of tangentially related. It's a COVID paper. I should just call it a COVID so, yeah, paper. Yeah, I've got some uh, D-dimer stuff, some clinical decision instruments, like a few interesting things. I've got a few interesting papers, and I've got a couple at the end. One's actually clinical practice, one's house of medicine, but they're really interesting. And one's about agitation and managing agitation in the ER, and the other one's about police presence in the ER, which are actually beautifully written manuscripts. And I really enjoyed reading them. They just sort of happened to be sort of towards the end, uh, but I hope you guys stick around for the long haul so you hear about them. They're great uh, work. And then after we do our 20 papers, we have Jess and Jenny, who will be doing their ultra summary. And then- Triple T-A-L-N. Cluster randomization. Oh, cl- oh! I didn't get... I just saw cluster. Yeah, it sounds like you know? a cluster. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm not even... I can't even read this out loud. So I didn't I didn't read the rest of it. Randomization. That's Yeah, that's word too. So it's cluster... Random clusters of it. Got it. So uh, happy April. Happy April Fools. Go pull some pranks and tell us about it. And, and go uh, Rams. And go, go Rams and in the past. those of you in the future, tell me how they did. Does that make sense? No, not, not really. really. We're off to a good start, as usual. Paper chase. Abstract number one. Effect of a diagnostic strategy using an elevated and age-adjusted D-dimer threshold on thromboembolic events in ED patients with suspected PE, a randomized clinical trial, and this is by Frund et al. from JAMA. So in the approach to a patient with a suspected PE, there are multiple risk stratification tools and diagnostic algorithms that one could use before deciding to order a CTPA. Two commonly used ones are the PERC, the PE rule-out criteria, wherein patients who are at low pretest probability of PE, you can basically stop the workup, they say sort of consider them zero pretest probability, if they don't have any of the following, age greater than or equal to 50, a heart rate greater than 100, an O2 sat less than 95, unilateral leg swelling, hemoptysis, recent trauma or surgery, uh, prior PE or DVT, and exogenous estrogen use. So those are sort of things that go into PERC. And another really commonly one that's used is the age-adjusted D-dimer, where basically you can raise your positive cut point to either age times 10 nanograms per milliliter for patients over age 50, or you can just say for every decade over 50, you add 100. A newer one, which we have covered on the program, is the years criteria. And basically the way years works is you just sort of ask the patient or ask yourself three different questions. Is PE the most likely diagnosis? Is there a clinical evidence of a DVT, like a swollen leg or something? And is there hemoptysis? And if you say no, 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 so the patient is functionally years negative, then you can raise your cut point to 1,000. So that's the way years works. And although years had really, really excellent derivation and validation work that was published in The Lancet, and since then has had compelling external validation work from like sites all across the United States, the authors here performed the first randomized trial to assess the safety 
of years when you combine it with perk and age-adjusted D-dimers. There's a lot going on here. This is a cluster-randomized crossover non-inferiority trial from 18 emergency departments in France and Spain. Mike's home away from home, mm-hmm. France. Soon to be my home at home. <laughs> if he moves there, which he always talks about doing. Enrolling patients with low pretest probability of PE that were not perk negative. They couldn't be perked out. And patients with intermediate or moderate pretest probability of PE. Each participating emergency department was randomized either to the control strategy for four months, followed by the intervention for four months with a washout period in the middle that was like a month or two, something like that, or the reverse. So your ED started with the intervention strategy and then went to the control. And the control was basically they said, PE is ruled out in your patient if you have an age-adjusted negative D-dimer or imaging negative if the D-dimer was elevated, so if it warranted getting imaging. In the intervention group, PE was ruled out if the patient was years negative. So they started with years, right? So if they were years negative, they sent the D-dimer still, right? That was sent in all these. And if it was negative, then, you know, they ruled it out. Or if the age-adjusted D-dimer was negative, or if the imaging was negative in a patient who had an elevated D-dimer and greater than or equal to one year's criteria. Right, so they basically just used years first is the key. The primary endpoint was VTE at three months, and the non-inferiority margin was set at 1.35%, the difference. They enrolled just over 1,400 patients. The mean age was 55, 58% female, and they present data largely in the paper on just over 1,200, or 86% of the original enrolled cohort so that they can give per-protocol data. That's their focus on the per-protocol analysis. Some of them were excluded for protocol violations, like they were supposed to get the scan and didn't get it, etc. Some were lost to follow-up, but it was a pretty small number at 37. They diagnosed six PEs at three months, one in the intervention group and five in the control group, with a failure rate of 0.15% for those who were evaluated with years first, versus 0.8% in those who are evaluated with just the age-adjusted D-dimer. The confidence estimate of the difference was within their pre-specified non-inferiority margin. It's a pretty small difference, and they had a lot of patients. Of several secondary outcomes, including mortality and admission, among others, the one that was notably different between the two groups was chest imaging. In the intervention group, 30% of the patients got imaged, Whereas in the control period, when they weren't using years, 40% of the patients got image. In a post hoc analysis, because they really wanted to look at safety. So they looked at the subgroup of patients who were years negative. They said, okay, because this is the one you actually changed in, you did something different, and you started with years and it was negative. And those were 515 patients, and they had no missed PE. So the failure rate was zero. So if you were years negative and they didn't scan you, you didn't have any missed but PEs. But isn't there just something odd happening here? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going back two steps where you said the rate of VTE or missed VTE in the age-adjusted only group was 0.8. Is that what you said? Correct. And it was 0.15 in the years. But how can that, how does that logically flow, right? Because if you were years negative, you would have been age-adjusted negative also necessarily. 
No, that's a really good question and a really good point. I think the answer, truthfully, is just dumb luck. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think they were trying to say that the years criteria was, you know, better or, and I agree with you, anybody who was years negative would have, you know, got if, if they were in the control group, which they weren't, they would have been negative in that arm as well, right? They would have been right. negative in either. Right. So I think the difference is they don't really focus truthfully on the 0.15 versus 0.8. Okay. They're just saying both are safe. Okay. Right. In yeah, this, I thought yeah. there was going to be some no. claim that no, no, oh, no. years is better than but I'm like that's the it's only years claim plus the only claim they make about years being better is there was less imaging. Right. So okay. I sort of think they're trying to say at the end hmm? misses were incredibly rare whether you used years first or age adjusted D dimer first. But the imaging was less okay. if you used years first. That's kind of where they're headed right, that, with all this stuff. It, that makes sense that that would be a proper hypothesis and they could show that. Okay, I'm good. So, you know, in the end, I think this is a really well done, big effort, international study run out of the emergency department, which is also really cool that we sort of did this as a specialty. But there are some limitations here, including a non-consecutive enrollment strategy. There were some protocol deviations, 40 patients total, 29 of whom got imaging despite a negative D-dimer, and 11 of whom who did not get imaging despite a positive D-dimer, which actually is pretty low. Yeah. You know, and we've covered other papers where it's we just ignore like third, those results yeah. Yeah, all the time. And 37 patients were lost to follow up, like I mentioned before. Now, they took this pretty seriously, and they performed sensitivity analyses and a multiple imputation strategy to sort of account for some of these protocol violations and missing patients. And the results were largely unchanged. So at the end of the day, I think they're just saying, hey, years will reduce imaging and does seem to be non-inferior to the age-adjusted first. Editor's commentary. This is a large and well-conducted randomized trial adding to the evidence that years can be used to safely decrease imaging in patients being worked up for PE, an absolute imaging difference of 10% in this paper and is the first study to suggest employing a strategy combining years with age-adjusted D-dimer and PERC, although a little bit complicated to remember, does appear to be non-inferior to the more conventional approach. Abstract number two, rapid rule-out of myocardial infarction after 30 minutes as an alternative to one hour, the racing MI cohort study by Bang et al. in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. So, High-sensitivity troponins have been slowly taking over the developed world and offer an advantage in terms of ability to rapidly rule out MI in patients with chest pain. In the original studies that were looking at the safety of these high-sensitivity rapid rule-outs, a zero- and one-hour approach was generally used. Providers got troponins at time zero or arrival and at one hour, and if both were negative, i.e. sort of below the detection threshold, the patient ruled out. If the first was positive or above the 99th percentile, then the patient ruled in. And if it was a little tiny bit elevated, so above the threshold, but below the 99% on the zero hour, and then rose a lot, you ruled in. And if it stayed stable, you sort of ended up in this snowman's land. This approach has been studied in large multi-center European cohorts and currently really serves as a foundational piece to the management of chest pain patients without ST segment elevation in Europe. So that's pretty fast, a zero and one hour protocol. But I think, Sanjay, I don't remember when, but something like a year ago, you did a study, maybe less than a year ago, where they had the volunteers and they included their LAD for 
what, like 30 seconds? Yeah, it was during calf. And right. And they like, you know, they kind of pinched it down. Yeah, <laughs> literally. They blew up the yeah. balloon, yeah. right? Yeah, and they, and they sent serial troponins on them to see like how quickly is this high sensitivity yeah. go up? And it was incredible. It was the seconds. Yeah, like it was said. like the, my recollection of that paper was that after 30 seconds, the high sensitivity troponins started to rise. And after like, I think a, a good fraction of those went above that 99th percentile. Yeah, I think, and even the ones that didn't, I think they were all elevated by that 30 minute mark. So this makes oh, well, they sense. Didn't, yes, 30 minutes after yes. The, the occlusion. Yes, no, they didn't. In, no, the record, they didn't, they they didn't did not occlude the LED for 30 minutes, but they did it for like 30 seconds. And that was enough to rise the high sensitivity troponins. So these authors wanted to say, look, if, you know, do we really have to wait an hour? Can we do it at 30 minutes instead of an hour? Because apparently in Denmark, where the study was conducted, you can get patients through an emergency department in 30 minutes. I don't know. It makes a difference. So this, is right. the, this is the seven-minute abs <laughs> paper. Is, everybody out there, remember something about Mary? <laughs> the eight-minute abs? Seven-minute seven minute abs. This is the 30-minute MI protocol. This is 30, but the racing MI. Racing. I love it. So it's actually interesting how they organize chest pain in Denmark. If you have chest pain there and you call an ambulance, the crew, the ambulance crew gets an ECG like we do here, but they also do a point of care troponin. If the point of care troponin's positive or the ECG shows STEMI, they take you to some fancy cath lab area. And if not, they bring you to like a regional health center where they just can deal with regular patients who need to be ruled out for and STEMIs. And this study was conducted in one of those sort of regional centers. So this is all for patients without STEMI. Adult patients who were not pregnant or on dialysis were enrolled. They had troponins drawn at arrival, which is time zero, 30 minutes, one hour, and three hours. And they determined they'd need about 1,000 patients to derive and validate these zero and 30-minute cutoffs. The primary endpoints were the test characteristics of the zero and 30-minute algorithm compared to the zero and one algorithm for detecting MI. And the gold standard for defining MI was a chart review of all available data, including troponin results, by two investigators. They end up with these two cohorts, a derivation and validation set that were concurrently collected. The point here is that they had to derive the appropriate cutoffs for the 30-minute mark because that's not really established. So what's an abnormal value? What's an abnormal value at 30 minutes? And so they, they do the usual stuff and they say, okay, this is what optimizes it. And then they use the second half of the cohort to validate that. So again, they ended up enrolling just over 1,000 patients. Interestingly, they concluded their enrollment in February of 2019. Lucky them, because that's right before everybody else concluded their enrollment for COVID protocol, you know, because you could no longer do research in the clinical areas. 500 people were in the validation cohort, and of them, 9% had an MI. The 30-minute approach performed as well as the one-hour approach. Basically, the algorithm, the 30-minute algorithm, ruled out 48% of the cohorts. Of all the 500 people that came in, half of them had negative troponins at zero and 30 minutes, roughly, and they ruled out completely, and none of them had a follow-up MI, okay, when they were followed in their Danish health system electronic record. The one-hour approach was identical. Just about half the people ruled out, and none of them had an MI. Conversely, the zero 30-minute approach ruled in 11% of the cohort, which I already told you only 9% had an MI, so it was not 100% specific. So the specificity was still very high at 95%. And the one-hour protocol was also about 95%. So there's like one patient that ruled in and out you know, in, in the different protocols. So essentially, they were same, same. The problem, of course, with both of these things is that 42% of the cohort ended up in the observation zone. 
you know, which is a problematic area for us. They have mildly elevated troponins that don't rise very much, but they don't rule out completely. But that was not different whether it was done at the 0 30 minute algorithm versus the 0 1 hour algorithm. You look like you wanted to say something. No, I was going to ask that very question if maybe there was a difference between the two groups there. No, yeah. So the bottom line here is that they performed identically. There's a lot of limitations in the study. Most of the patients here in this study had chest pain for several hours duration, right? So the difference between 30 minutes and one hour would seemingly be physiologically irrelevant. In fact, you know, if the chest pain is longstanding, you know, I've had chest pain for eight hours, there's not compelling, at least theoretic evidence that you should do two troponins in the first place. Maybe just one is sufficient. So it would be highly useful to understand how these accelerated algorithms perform with sort of hyperacute or very acute chest pain, but they don't really address that. They do have a table where they look at people who have had like less than three hours of chest pain versus more than three hours of chest pain, and it performed equally well in those two groups, but three hours is still pretty long compared to you know sort of what we're talking about here. The other thing is I'm a little bit nervous about incorporation bias in these findings. That is, the authors use the troponin assays as part of the adjudication process to determine if the patient had experienced an MI or not experienced an MI, right? And that always will have a tendency to inflate sensitivity and specificity. If you look at the test and go, oh, the test is positive, that's an MI, necessarily the test agrees with the final adjudication because it was incorporated into the final adjudication. Still, to be honest, I tend to believe these results. They fall in line with most other studies on the topic, showing that these rapid approaches are highly sensitive and fairly specific, leave about 50% of the cases in the observation zone. And based on just physiologic parameters and how long it takes people to present to the ER, I'm fairly confident that a zero and one hour approach is probably equivalent to a zero and 30 minute approach. But it should be noted that this isn't really validated in a wide array of EDs and among different patient populations. Editor's commentary. And this relatively large study of patients with suspected acute coronary syndrome presenting to a single site in Denmark, an accelerated MI rule-out using arrival high-sensitivity troponin and 30-minute high-sensitivity troponin performed as well as the more established zero- and one-hour approach. Clinical practice. Abstract number three. Development and external validation of the KIDS TBI tool for managing children with mild traumatic brain injury and intracranial injuries. This is by Greenberg et al. from Academic Emergency Medicine. So this is a really, really good paper. Pay attention, All right. everybody. You I'm know. listening. Particularly those of you who are like sort of, you know, junior researchers or thinking about going into academics, this paper is really incredibly well written and the methodology is super sound. So the PCARN Head Trauma CT Decision Guide, I think, is well known to almost everybody listening to this program or MRAP in general or practicing emergency medicine anywhere in the world, right? What it does is it helps us avoid unnecessary imaging in kids who have mild head injury or mild trauma. But the question remains, what do you do if you find a bleed? So deciding on level of care or need for transfer to a specialized center for patients with radiographic evidence of intracranial injury on CT is usually left either up to the individual provider, right? You sort of decide, do I want them in a step down? Do I want them in the ICU? 
Or maybe there's like some hospital policy which says all of our bleeds go here or all of our bleeds, you know, get transferred to a different hospital. In this study, the authors attempt to derive and validate a new clinical decision instrument to stratify the risk of neurologic decline, which they call the kid's TBI, and then they compare it to the Children's Intracranial Injury Decision Aid tool, which is currently the best available clinical decision instrument for this purpose. For the derivation phase, they use the original PCARN dataset. And then for the external validation, they used data collected from another group called the Multicenter Pediatric TBI Research Consortium. So they derived it from PCARN and then validated it with another data set. The primary outcome was a composite outcome of neurosurgical intervention, intubation for more than 24 hours due to the TBI or death due to the TBI. And like I said at the start of this thing, the method section of this is really a masterclass in CDI development. They list out every candidate predictor variable that they put in their model. They talk about how each one was assessed in the chart or in the, you know, in the data set in a lot of detail. And they also, like I said, this is a really good paper for sort of junior researchers to read. They go into a lot of detail about their multivariable modeling technique that they used. And they use this recursive partitioning technique. Cartagenium. Yeah, which is really cool, right? Because it sort of identifies predictors by level of importance or strongest association with the outcome of interest sequentially. Mm-hmm. So it's like, this one seems to be the strongest associated. And then it sort of runs itself again to find the next strongest and the next strongest. And it keeps going until adding more variables in doesn't add anything else to the model itself or to your ability to predict things. But they, they really describe it well. This is just a well-written paper. They identified three major risk factors, midline shift, depressed skull fracture, and epidural hematoma. In patients who had none of these, then sort of second-level predictors as you went down this tree were GCS score, presence of subdural hematoma, extraaxial hematoma, cerebral contusion. Those are what they use to stratify sort of the lower risk patients who didn't have one of those top three factors. In the validation phase conducted among 1,600 patients, they evaluated three potential cutoffs, right? They said, okay, what if everybody hears where we said they are really sick and should be transferred or you know, whatever it is? And their first cutoff, the most conservative one, was any of those three. If you had any of those three, then, you know, something bad is going to happen to you. You're high risk for a neurological decline, which had a sensitivity of 100%, but a specificity of 25%, mas o menos. The other two decision-making cutoffs had worse sensitivity, sort of in the 95% range, so still not bad, but improved specificity in the high 60s to low 80s range. That's actually pretty good. In head-to-head comparison, I won't go into a lot of details here. They found the kid's TBI rule to outperform this previous children's intracranial injury decision aid tool. They then propose a final model, okay? And if you're really interested in this, it's probably best to just look at it in the paper. It's figure three. It's a little bit hard to describe. It kind of looks like how you're used to seeing a PCARN head trauma algorithm where you ask yourself a series of questions and you kind of move down this decision tree of what to do. Right? It's like a step-by-step evaluation, and then they provide the risk of bad outcome or risk of neurologic decline at every step. So midline shift, yes, then it looks over to the right you know, and says, like, your chance of neurologic decline is this, 
you should think about doing this. And if you say no, then it goes down one more step to the next sort of big item question. Does that make sense? Yep. So it's really easy if you look at the figure. It's a little bit hard to describe uh, on a program like this. And basically, if you go all the way to the end, you're like, no, no, no. And then the minor criteria, no, 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 no. All the way down the list, they kind of say your chance of neurologic decline is really, really low. This is the patient you could sort of consider, you know, having some lower level of care or something like that. They don't go so far as to say you should, you know, keep them on the ward at your hospital that doesn't see kids. But that's kind of their way of thinking about it. And I think it's a really great tool to like talk about with parents and things like that, just sort of understanding the severity of the head trauma. So this is really outstanding work, trying to help guide resource utilization and management of kids with intracranial injury. And I think the model they describe has very high face validity, but obviously requires further external validation in a bigger cohort of patients before this thing could actually be used. But it's really an awesome paper. And the cool thing about it is looking at the author list, because I'm like, God, even just the way it's written is so well written. It's all neurosurgeons on the paper with only two ED docs in there, as best as I could tell, Nate Cooperman and Chris Carpenter, who obviously are, you know, big deal names, and these guys really know what they're doing. But kudos to these neurosurgeons for putting together some really good work that impacts ED care of patients. Editor's Commentary in this exceptionally well-done study, the authors develop and validate a new clinical decision instrument called the KIDS TBI, which they suggest can predict which kids with intracranial injury are at risk for bad outcomes and neurologic deterioration, potentially helping guide disposition planning. It needs external validation and your hospital to buy in before you can actually use it, but I think we should all be aware of this new clinical decision instrument and for any researchers out there looking to develop your own CDI, please read this paper. Abstract number four, differentiating central from peripheral causes of acute vertigo in an emergency setting with the HINTS, Standing, and ABCD2 tests, a diagnostic cohort study. This is by Gerlier, I think, in academic emergency medicine. And you all know me. If you want to get covered in EMA, do a study on central vertigo. It can be terrible, and I'll cover it. You know what I think? It's even more than that, right? It doesn't even have to be central vertigo. It could be like, just have hints in the title. Yeah, right. Like, it could be like, it could be like, a, like how do you diagnose with appendicitis? Hint, yeah. examine the belly. I'm on it. <laughs> yeah, just in case there's some reference to the hint score yeah, or right. something like or, that. Just the, the or, word or, hint. <laughs> you know, yeah, it could be anything, right? It doesn't have to be about vertigo. It could be like, is dealing with... Uh, Difficult patients making you dizzy? <laughs> Boom. You could be a paper chaser just by the name. Just dizziness. Yeah. So I, I'm on it no matter how terrible the paper is. And this one's not terrible. In fact, it's pretty good. So you know I'm all over this. The goal here is to differentiate central from peripheral causes of vertigo without MRIing everyone. We've spent considerable time talking about the HINTS exam over the past couple of years, specifically noting that it's usually done improperly and or on the wrong patients. Remember. The HINTS exam has no value for patients who are not experiencing spontaneous nystagmus. When done in the right patients, by the right clinicians, it's reported to have nearly 100% sensitivity and greater than 90% specificity for stroke. But can us lowly ED docs be trained to perform this very complicated test? That's really what the study's asking, though they incorporate a couple other elements like the standing algorithm 
and the ABCD2 score. So basically what they do here is they compare the sensitivity and specificity of those three things, the hints, the standing test, and the ABCD2 score when performed by emergency physicians in patients with possible central cause of vertigo. I won't go into the standing score. And you know, to be honest, I don't think we have covered the standing score in EMA. It's kind of a new thing. And basically, when you look at it, it's basically the HINTS exam. I like it, actually. I I probably like it a little more because it starts with, you say, nystagmus. Is nystagmus present or absent? And if it's absent, then basically you're almost done. Then you try to walk the patient. If they fall over, you go, oh, that could be central. And so you work those ones up. If the nystagmus is positional, you are done, right? Then it's BPV or whatever. You're not worried about it. And if it's spontaneous nystagmus that's not positional, then basically you do the head impulse test. And if the head impulse test is positive you know, for, for stroke, then you go ahead and work them up. So it basically is the HINTS exam, but it also incorporates the stand up and try to walk element that's not part of the HINTS exam. And it which de-emphasizes is, the test of skew, which is one that none of us have actually ever observed. Which is funny because when you said it, I had never heard of it, yep. actually. I thought... Wouldn't it be funny if that's what it was? Yeah. If the standing test was, hey, stand up, buddy. Oh, you look like you're about to fall over. Let's get an MRI. <laughs> you actually have to fall over on the standing. You have to put a helmet on him before you stand him up. But yeah, that is essentially it. They, they, well, that's a very- It's the road test. That's an appropriately named test. It's essentially a hints exam without the test of skew and a road test. And if you fail it on any step of the way, you uh, go ahead and chase the central cause, which is fair. This study was performed at a single center in France, and the mechanics of it are a little bit unusual, but kind of cool. First, they uptrained nine ED docs on how to perform the HINTS exam and the standing algorithm. And the training was actually kind of intense. It was four hours of lecture and a two-hour workshop, and this was repeated after seven months. I was like, does it really take that long to learn the HINTS exam? Okay. If so, then most of us are definitely doing it wrong. I'll <laughs> right. say that off the bat. So they uptrained them pretty intensely. This is a serious uh, you know, training situation. What they then did is they advertised the study in the ED such that when an eligible patient with vertigo arrived, they would call one of these nine super vertigo docs to come and perform the HINTS standing and ABCD2 score and record the results on a dedicated sheet. And they would not disclose that to the treating physician. So they swooped in with their vertigo capes in, did their evaluation, and then left without telling the treating doc what they found, which seems slightly odd, but you know, whatever. Eligible patients had to have acute vertigo and some imbalance symptom of less than one week duration. And patients who were asymptomatic at the time of evaluation were excluded, as were those with obvious lateralizing stroke signs, right? Which I think is great. Because a lot of times people study this stuff in sort of all comers and the test characteristics look really good, but it's like totally obvious from the onset that this is BPV or, you know, or this is a stroke. And we don't really need all this fancy diagnostic or these clinical decision aids or diagnostic tests to sort that out in those cases. These were seemingly the more ambiguous ones. I, I do appreciate that. All the patients either got an MRI or in the ED or were scheduled for one as an outpatient. They enrolled 320 patients. 20 of them were lost to follow up without an MRI. So that gives us a cohort of 300 patients total, of whom 62, or just over 20%, had a central vertigo proven by MRI either in the ED or on follow up. 67% of those were ischemic stroke. 10% of them were hemorrhagic stroke. 10% of them were tumors. 
and 5% of them were cerebellar atrophy. So like some chronic alcoholic that was like very ataxic and whatnot. And 5% of them had some kind of demyelinating disease, typically MS. The mean age was 60, but the strokes were much older. They were on average 72. Similarly, the strokes were much more likely to have a truly unsteady gait at 86% of the strokes had that versus only 44% of the peripheral cases where they were able to walk. And the strokes were much less likely to have vomiting. 30% of the strokes had vomiting versus 72% of the peripheral cases. So how did these tests perform? The HINTS exam performed by these super vertigo ED docs was 97% sensitive, missed one case, and 67% specific. So not as specific as has previously been reported, but not bad. Not bad at all. The standing test did really about the same. It missed one other case of central, so it was 94% sensitive versus a little bit more specific, 75% specific. And the ABCD2 score did terribly. It was 50% sensitive. We, I don't think any of us are surprised by that. There are a variety of minor issues in this study, including that it's single site, and there must have been some communication between the treating docs and the super ED docs, but I think those are relatively minor. And I think that this is overall pretty encouraging and validates the notion that the HINTS test or exam and the standing algorithm or the standing algorithm can be used to differentiate these cases that are quite tricky, but with very high sensitivity and moderate specificity, even among a group of patients that seemingly should be difficult, right? These were the more ambiguous cases. So remember, they only enrolled those equivocal ones to start. So I think that that's pretty good. The question really that emerges out of this is, you know, how much training do you really need? Because, I mean, that's basically a full day of training twice a year. And that's just not probably very realistic for ED docs out there. You know, could you do this in an hour? Could you shorten and figure it out? I think you probably can, but they didn't really stress that element of the system. But I think this is great work and it, and it serves as a validation for these things. So if you don't know how to do these tests, watch some videos learn how to do it. I think it can avoid a lot of MRIs or at least make you feel better about the cases that you're going to discharge without MRI, that you're doing the right thing. And I think you know a point you have made previously when you cover these, this is one of the more positive takes I've yep. heard you have on the HINTS exam, is that you should have to make sure you're doing it on the right patient. Absolutely. Right? Like that's where it all boils down to is yep. I think you don't want to use it indiscriminately on everybody with vertigo because that's not right. Right. Absolutely. We've talked about this many times, I think, but yeah, if you're using it on any person with vertigo, especially one that doesn't have vertigo and nystagmus right in front of you, you're going to get the wrong result like 100% of the time, and it's going to result in more MRIs and stuff. So I actually am a fan of this test. I do it all the time on the appropriately selected patients, but those are actually pretty rare in the ED, right? The patient that's coming in with spontaneous, persistent nystagmus, that's very different than the BPV patient who says, I've been dizzy all day. And you look at them and like, are you dizzy right now? And they're like, oh, no, no, not right now. But if I move my head, well, that's the wrong person to be doing it in. So, you know, you do have to do it in the right person. And that's where this training element comes in. And I think you can probably learn how to do this properly in an hour or two, a good lecture or two. And I think that, you know, we could probably see similar results. But, you know, this is pretty good stuff. Edit this commentary. This is essentially a large validation of the HINTS and standing algorithm performed by ED clinicians for the detection of ED patients presenting with an uncertain cause of vertigo. The results show very high sensitivity for these exams for detecting stroke and reasonable specificity. ED providers should become very familiar with the examination technique and its indications. 
Abstract number five. The ability of Canadian syncope risk score in differentiating cardiogenic and non-cardiogenic syncope, a cross-sectional study, this is by Safari et al., from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. So syncope is a challenging presenting complaint in the ED because unless there's an obvious and benign explanation, we usually end up admitting these people and feeling really terrible about it because we know that the yield of these admissions is incredibly low. There are various risk stratification tools out there that have been proposed, and Canadian syncope risk score is one of the newer ones, with a sensitivity of 97% in the original derivation and validation work. The elements of the rule are basically predisposition to a vagal event, a history of heart disease, any BP less than 90 or over 180, an elevated trope, an abnormal QRS axis or duration, QT interval that's prolonged, and this is the kicker whether the ED provider thinks this is cardiac or this has a vagal cause to it. We've covered two previous external validations of this rule, one from Australia and one from Italy, where the authors observed a pretty big drop-off in sensitivity from that 97 down to sort of like the 70s. So now we can add Iran to the list of countries who has performed an external validation of the Canadian syncope risk score. So this is a prospective cross-sectional study of a consecutive sample of adults presenting to the ED with syncope. And basically, they prospectively collected all of the variables necessary to calculate the Canadian syncope risk scores on a little check sheet. They just went through it and calculated the score. They enrolled 300 patients. About two-thirds were male. The median age was 56 years. Just over 50% were very low risk. About 10% were low risk, 15% moderate risk, and 15% high risk, and 6% were found to be very high risk. They then just generated a rock curve and found the area under the curve to be 0.77, and they looked at some cut points and said, okay, the optimum cut point of using this Canadian syncope rule, how they want to use it, had a sensitivity of 73% and a specificity of 73%. So the findings are in line with other external validations. The problem is the methods on this one are not very good. In that, they are not described at all, which sort of leads me to question the validity of their results. So first of all, they state that just under half of the cohort, just under half, was found to have a cardiac cause of syncope. That's a lot, especially with a mean age of 50. So... Good point, Michael. <laughs> That's, that is a lot, right? So more importantly, nowhere in this paper do they define what constituted a cardiac syncope, right? Or what they did with ambiguous cases where like, they're just not sure if it was cardiac or not cardiac. All it says is that at one month, they called the patient or a relative, whoever it was, and this call was made by either a cardiologist or a neurologist, and then they just made the call. That's what it seems like to me. And they grouped them into, you know, cardiac or non-cardiac. They don't mention at all about the diagnosis in the ED, like what the ED provided, what happened to the paid, did they get admitted, any of that stuff. So the methods here are incredibly light, and quite frankly, I just don't get them. They also don't talk about lost a follow-up rate. They don't talk about the admission rate, the mortality rate, or the serious clinical event rate at one month, which is what the score is designed to evaluate. Right. All they do is they say, 
how many of these high-risk people were cardiac and not cardiac? It's a really weird study because I don't even understand how they decided who was cardiac or not cardiac. But, you know, I think the lesson for me is that when you get a new clinical decision instrument that looks good, it does need to be subject to external validation. Some of the external validation is going to be high quality, some not so high quality, but you're going to see a lot of these external validation papers coming out. Editor's commentary. In this external validation of the Canadian syncope risk score from Iran, the authors conclude that the score does not have adequate test characteristics to differentiate cardiac from non-cardiac syncope, but I have serious concerns about their analysis strategy and outcome assessment that make me doubt their findings. Further external validation of the Canadian syncope risk score is still needed. Abstract number six, rivaroxaban versus no anticoagulation for post-discharge thromboprophylaxis after hospitalization for COVID-19, the Michelle study, an open-label multicenter randomized controlled trial by Ramachioti et al. in The Lancet. So thinking about venothromboembolism in the context of COVID has been a real challenge as the data has been a bit all over the place and difficult to follow. It does seem clear that the incidence of VTE is high among patients with severe COVID and that's patients who are admitted with COVID. This does not seem to be true for patients with mild or moderate COVID, people who are generally going to be treated as outpatients if they're treated by the healthcare system at all. It's also true that most trials of empiric therapeutic anticoagulation for patients hospitalized with COVID did not show clinical benefit. So overall, the approach has evolved to Preserve full anticoagulation for COVID patients who have proven VTE and give the other hospitalized patients with COVID prophylactic dosing for VTE, like other very sick people get when they're hospitalized. You know, you get the low dose anoxaparin or whatever. Now, these authors are interested in whether patients discharged after hospitalization with severe COVID should be continued on prophylactic anticoagulation. And my initial thought is, of course not. But these authors cite some articles in which severely ill people leaving the hospital, not with COVID, but with other stuff, have high rates of subsequent VTE, you know, maybe due to the underlying medical condition, maybe due to, you know, they're going to be persistently convalescent on their couch or whatever. And so they think that you take severely ill people that already have a higher risk and you add on COVID, which is this, you know, sort of pro-thrombotic kind of thing, and maybe they should be continued on prophylactic medications for a month or something like that. They enrolled 320 Brazilian patients who are hospitalized for severe COVID. Most of them had been in the ICU and they had to have one of two risk factors for VTE, either a high D-dimer level or a high VTE risk score. And there's some scoring scheme that they use that I won't go into. Now, this is really important. They were randomized to 10 milligrams of daily rivaroxaban, which is the standard prophylaxis dose, not the treatment dose. So they were randomized to that versus nothing. And for the record, this is the same protocol that patients who get a hip replacement get. They get rivaroxaban for 35 days. And that's what they did in this case. I, I didn't actually know that. I mean, I know that they get something post-procedure. I didn't know how long it was supposed to be, but that's what the indication is for post-hip stuff. So they just followed that. The primary endpoint was a massive composite endpoint that included symptomatic or fatal PE or asymptomatic VTE that was documented on scan, 
It's kind of a big range of things. And then some other things like cardiovascular death, et cetera. The study protocol was such that each patient at 35 days came back, right? And if they hadn't already met the primary endpoint by having a symptomatic clot in their leg or their lungs, they got their legs scanned and their chest scanned to look for a DVT or a PE. Oh, that's, I guess, how else are you going to find those asymptomatic <laughs> right, things exactly. for the composite endpoint? So. so, you know, yeah, it's interesting. Patients were enrolled from October 2020 through June 2021, and they were generally what you'd expect, overweight, older men, and 90% of them were treated with prophylactic anticoagulation while they were in-house, both groups. So what they find? 3% of the rivaroxaban group met the primary outcome, and 9% of the control group did, a statistically significant difference. Most of the difference between the groups was driven by a higher incidence of symptomatic VTE, not asymptomatic VTE. So even though they did this big composite that I was all ready to jump all over and say, oh, sure, you found all this stuff that's irrelevant, that's not what it was. It was mostly people who had you know, actual blood clots, even a couple of fatalities, or you know, supposedly from PE. In terms of bleeding, no patient in either group had a major bleeding event. So I included this paper as it's the first to show some advantage for VTE prophylaxis for outpatients with COVID and may result in some patients being sent home on this in the future. So I think that's really important to remember. This is only for severe COVID patients who were discharged from the hospital and the only patients included in this were at high risk for DVT, right? They were admitted and they had high D-dimers or they had all these other risk scores. And this is only prophylactic dosing. This is not for us to be doing in the emergency department. Absolutely not. The only reason I really include it is because we might be seeing these patients coming back after a COVID bout and going, oh, you're on rivaroxaban. Did you have a PE, DVT? And of course, patients will have no understanding of that. And it may be useful to understand that this is coming out there and this is loitering around in the literature. And when they did the active 4B trial here, right, looking mm-hmm. at that sort of that same question for ED patients, they didn't find a difference, right? They didn't find any value in their prophylactic anticoagulation. But that was full therapeutic anticoagulation. Mm, I see. Yeah. So there is a distinction here. This is only for prophylaxis dosing, I which see. is also why the bleeding risk is right. like next to nothing. Because, you know, you're giving this low dose stuff. So, you know, there might be a role and we might see other studies emerging that say, you know, a lot of severely ill people that were in the hospital when they leave, you know, we kick people out of the hospital pretty early nowadays. Maybe they go and lie on their couch or in a hospital bed for a week anyway, and maybe they should be continued. I mean, that's how I'm sort of conceptualizing this is that maybe they should be on uh, prophylactic dosing for VTE again. So we might start to see these patients coming back to the ED and now we'll know why. And now we'll know why. Editor's commentary. Prophylactic VTE dosing for patients with severe COVID leaving the inpatient hospital setting for 35 days may prevent symptomatic thromboembolism. This is a relatively small study that should absolutely not trigger ED providers to prescribe anticoagulation for COVID patients. Rather, ED providers should just be aware that this may be one reason patients may be on low dose anticoagulation following a recent COVID admission. Abstract number seven. The prevalence of bacteremia in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients presenting to the ED of a tertiary care hospital. This is by Abu Dagar et al. from the Annals of Medicine. 
So although the majority of -of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest cases are the result of a primary cardiac problem, there are other reasons someone might suffer a cardiac arrest. Through largely observational data and one prospective effort from way back in 2014, which we covered, we covered on it. The paper chase. I remember. Like that was, that's just goes to show you how long our brains have been thinking about this kind of stuff. Previous studies have shown that a large portion of cardiac arrest patients may actually have bacteremia and that the presence of bacteremia might be associated with a higher ED mortality. Now, it's possible that the bacteremia occurs as a result of the arrest, right, through invasive resuscitative measures like putting in dirty lines and things like that. Dead gut. Right. Dead and dying gut. Translocation from the gut, low flow states, ischemia, or it's possible that the bacteremia preceded the arrest and might have played a role in causing it or something else entirely. Something so cool we haven't even thought about it yet. In this prospective study from Lebanon, the authors made an attempt to enroll a consecutive sample of adults with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest who got ACLS in the ED. In addition to standard of care, enrolled patients who had, they basically got an aerobic and anaerobic blood culture drawn in incredibly sterile fashion. They really go to a lot of effort to talk about like how trained these people were and the measures they took to clean the skin and do all this stuff from two different sites by research staff who were present 24-7, and they were not part of the clinical care team, right? So an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest came in, they'd call the VoIP or whatever it is, somebody would come down, really clean a couple areas, draw true blood cultures, and then walk away and take their blood cultures and see what they show. One interesting thing they talk about in the paper, actually, is where this occurred at this hospital in Lebanon. The pre-hospital providers don't do ACLS. So they do like a scoop and run. Oh, okay, but they're doing compressions. It's a little bit unclear, but there's definitely no meds or IVs. I'm sure they're doing compressions and breaths and stuff. So they are doing something, but you know, they're not like also putting in lines. And so they were like, it's pretty minimal what happens in the pre-hospital setting, which I think is what distinguishes it from some of the other papers on this topic. The primary outcome was prevalence of bacteremia and the secondary outcome was hospital mortality and overall mortality at 28 days. Of 200 enrolled patients, 93, or 46.5%, were found to be bacteremic. That's a large number. There were no significant differences in gender, age, or medical history between bacteremic and non-bacteremic out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients. The most common pathogen isolated from the culture was staph that made up almost 50% of the cultures, followed by enterococcus and E. coli, both at about 10%. ED mortality was higher among the bacteremic patients, 86% versus 72.9%, but the adjusted in-hospital mortality and 28-day mortality were the same across the groups. There also was no association between antibiotic administration during the resuscitation and hospital mortality. A strange thing about this study, at least when I read it, was the overall high mortality rate, right? Of the 93 bacteremic patients, 80 died in the ED, and of an additional 10 died in the hospital. So the overall mortality was 90 out of 93. But, I mean, these are out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. I mean, you know, I guess that's a little bit It's just a little high. That's all I'm saying. I usually think maybe 10% of them will survive in some manner or another. That's sort of what we get is like a sort of 10% survival right here. It's more like a 1% to 2%, and that was across both groups. So- it's clear, like Mike said, that's a lot. That's a lot of bacteria. And that's a lot of staff. 
Yeah. The people who've cleaned stuff. So I, I can understand why they explained, oh, we really, we swear we cleaned it really well because 50% of them were staff. Yeah. They had like, they kind of dealt with that definitionally. They said if it looked like something that potentially could be a skin contaminant, then it had to grow out of like both, you know, culture sites or wound sites mm. or something like that. But I agree. It's a lot of staff. But what's less clear here, like you said, is where to come from. Yeah. We still don't really know. And what are we supposed to do about it? Right. Are we supposed to give these people antibiotics or not? So although not addressed specifically in this paper, there have been several small trials that have been conducted. I did sort of a little bit of reading on the topic, and none of them have shown a benefit of prophylactic antibiotics in the post-arrest patient. And relatively recently, there was a meta-analysis on the topic. Although they concluded that the quality of evidence was low, it did not show an improvement in mortality, good neurologic outcome, or surprisingly, even things like post-arrest pneumonia development or something giving antibiotics during the resuscitation. So I think this asks more questions than it answers. You know, this is a really, really high number. I don't know how much of it is real bacteria and real bacteremia, but the best evidence we have at this point says not supposed to give antibiotics for it. Editor's commentary. In this prospective study from Lebanon, the authors found that just under half of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients were bacteremic, but cannot say where the bacteria came from or how treating it might impact outcomes. The best overall evidence at this point does not support the use of prophylactic antibiotics in the post-arrest patient. Quick take. Abstract number eight, and this is a quick take. It's feasibility and usefulness of a rapid two-channel EEG monitoring point-of-care EEG for acute CNS disorders in the pediatric emergency department an observational study. This is by Sima et al., and it's in the Emergency Medicine Journal. So occasionally we worry when people have unexplained coma that they might be in non-convulsive status epilepticus. This is particularly true when they have a you know, recent history of brain injury or a history of epilepsy or something like that. EEG obviously can reveal or refute this diagnosis fairly quickly once it's applied. The challenge is that very few EDs have ready access to EEG, and it typically involves calling in, you know, a rarely used EEG technician, and it may take many hours for them to arrive, set up the whole thing, etc., if it's even possible at all at your institution. So the issue there, of course, is that delays in the diagnosis of non-convulsive status epilepticus can render this condition more refractory to anti-epileptic medications once you figure it out. The notion that the sort of epileptic pathways burn themselves into the brain and it becomes very difficult to sort of arrest them once that gets going. In this study, the authors report on children from a single hospital in Switzerland who had a two-channel EEG. That's four electrodes. And I'm used to the, I don't know how many channels there normally are on an EEG, but when you've ever seen them, right, they've got this thing on and they got like 50 electrodes attached to them. So in this case, they just have two channels, four electrodes put on the head and they were placed at the bedside by ED docs who were trained very quickly on how to do this. And they sort of show the positioning of these two electrodes. And then they're plugged into a EEG module, which plugs right into your standard monitor. So basically, you got your heart rate, your blood pressure, your pulse ox, and your EEG tracing on the monitor right there. The ED providers, as I said, were trained on how to apply this and how to interpret the EEG. And they said that this was done pretty quickly. But they could ask the neurology team to help interpret the EEG as necessary. The key innovation 
is that it does not require the EEG tech at all, right? So the ED docs can do it and therefore it became available 24 seven. The indications for using this were multiple, but basically it was to check for non-convulsive status epilepticus when that was indicated. They used the gizmo on 36 kids during the study period, which was a three-year-long study period, and six of those 36 were proven to have non-convulsive status epilepticus. It's not clear how suspicious the providers were for non-convulsive status. Maybe it was fairly evident. I don't know. But providers, you know, thought, then they said they did a sort of Mikey likes it thing and providers liked it and rated it as easy to perform. Did these kids get like a gold standard EEG after, like a proper one, just to make sure the thing wasn't reading false positives or something like that? This is not a good study. It's not a good study. You seemed enthusiastic at the start. I'll tell you. You know, it wasn't like somebody shaking the bed or something like that. No, they said it was. There's no gold standard. There's nothing like that. The methods are not strong. It's really hard to tell how often this device might have been indicated. It was only used a few times, you know, et cetera. There's no gold standard. All sorts of issues were not addressed in the methodology of this paper. Still, it's kind of an interesting idea. And there are devices now that are FDA approved that are basically EEGs that we slap on in the ER. And there's this one called the Cerebell, for example, that's like a belt that you put across the patient's head and it gives a lot of channels of EEG. I don't know how many. And the reason I include this study is just to introduce this idea. It looks like at the fore of seizure management in emergency medicine, there's a trend towards trying to make EEG more available in the ED. And that trend will necessarily involve ED docs learning either how to apply the thing and or how to interpret the results, etc. And so I just kind of put this out there that this was done at one place and they sort of did this homemade version of it. You know, it's like four electrodes. Now there's some proprietary sort of gizmos that are coming through the coming, you know, through the pike. And I, yeah, I thought that's kind of interesting. Editor's commentary. This is a very small study with extremely limited methods showing a point of care EEG monitoring system may be effective in identifying non-convulsive status epilepticus or other neurologic conditions. Providers should be aware that new devices are bringing this technology to the emergency department. Abstract number nine, adverse events associated with electrical cardioversion in patients with acute AFib and A-flutter, this by Ian Steele et al. from the Canadian Journal of Cardiology. So acute AFib and A-flutter are the most common dysrhythmias requiring treatment in the ED. And whether you choose a rate control or a rhythm control management strategy might depend on lots of things, including what country you practice in, where you trained, your previous experience with these two techniques, or local expected practice of how you're supposed to manage these patients. But in Canada, where this study was conducted, they prefer rhythm control. But there is still individual level practice variation on whether to attempt a pharmacologic conversion first and then move to electrical conversion if your meds fail, so that's the drug shock approach, or to start with electrical cardioversion. Just go right to the electricity. The shock, shock approach. The shock, the shock only. In an effort to inform which strategy might be better, the authors of this study attempt to evaluate the safety of electrical cardioversion in the ED by conducting a secondary analysis of existing data sets from four previous multicenter studies consisting of almost 3,500 patients with acute AFib or A-flutter from 23 emergency departments spread out across Canada. 
The primary outcome was any serious event occurring in the ED, including things like hypotension or bradycardia with clinical instability, requiring a presser or chronotropic agent or pacing, ventricular arrhythmia or other arrhythmia causing clinical instability. So something bad. That was the primary outcome. And then secondary outcomes were things that were sort of less bad, but still maybe important. Largely actually focused on things that look like potential complications from sedation. Things like hypoxia was in there, transient hypoxia, prolonged recovery time, like that was in there as a secondary outcome. So of the just about 3,500 patients in the original trials, just over 1,700 underwent an attempted electrical cardioversion. The mean age was 60 years, with 3.5% of the sample being above 85 years, so really, really old, not that many. 84% were in AFib, and the mean duration of symptoms was 14 hours. The The other 15 were in like flutter, is that the idea? Correct. The success of the cardioversion was 90%, and the serious adverse event rate, that primary outcome, was 0.4%, with no deaths and no strokes. An additional 13-ish percent had a less severe adverse event. That's sort of that secondary outcome level. Most of them were respiratory events, a transient hypoxia that required, almost all of them were just jaw repositioning, sort of a jaw thrust, and a few of them got bag valve mask. They conducted a logistic regression and found that age greater than or equal to 85 history of coronary artery disease, or use of midazolam or fentanyl for the sedation all had odds ratios suggesting that they were more likely to cause harm. The highest one that was a 2.1, that was age over 85. The odds ratios of the rest were in the ones, the mid ones. There was no difference in adverse events between patients who got drug shock treatment compared with those who got shock only. Now, when I first read this, I was like, okay, you know, that's probably shouldn't use Versed. I wonder if they're using a lot of Versed up there, you know, or something like that. But they give the table. This is actually a pretty well-written paper. Propofol was used in the majority of cases, 93%. Atomidate was used very rarely in 2%. And I think at least sort of when I'm talking to residents and teaching about it and stuff, I don't use Atomidate for a lot of sedations. This is, this the, is one. the one, yeah. you know, this is the one where I kind of say it's supposed to be the most cardiodynamically neutral and all this stuff. But they didn't use it very often there at all, whereas Versed and ketamine were both used about 7% of the time. Now, those numbers don't add to 100, obviously, because sometimes they had multiple agents using ketafol or something like that. So the limitations of this paper are mainly those present in the initial trials, primarily that all patients were chosen as candidates for potential electrocardioversion by the treating physician. So definitely was some potential for selection bias here. But this is excellent information to use, I think, in shared decision-making when you're deciding between a drug shock or shock-only treatment approach if you have already made the decision to attempt rhythm control. Commentary. In this study from Canada, the authors report that while highly effective, electrical cardioversion for patients with acute onset AFib, A-flutter had an adverse event rate requiring treatment of 14%. Most of the events were very minor and appeared to be related to the sedation and not the cardioversion itself. They conclude that this supports a drug shock strategy, but an alternative way to interpret the findings would be don't use fentanyl or versed for sedation in these cases. Either way, be extra careful in elderly patients and those with pre-existing coronary artery disease. 
Abstract number 10 is risk for recurrent VTE and bleeding with apixaban compared with rivaroxaban, an analysis of real-world data by Dewas et al. in the Annals of Internal Medicine. So just for the record, it's kind of annoying that just when we developed the perfect antidote to warfarin-related bleeding in four-factor PCCs, warfarin disappears in favor of the DOAX, right? I mean, come on. Seriously, guys, let's time this a little bit better in the future. Had 50 years to develop the antidote. The day you invent it, some dude comes in and says, ah, we got to figure it out anyway. Are you suggesting a conspiracy is afoot? (laughs) I I wasn't, but now that you have- When you say it out loud, you put those facts together- what you're saying is that the the I'm asking the questions. DOAC, the DOAC manufacturers are also the warfarin manufacturers. They were sitting on DOACs for a long time. I mean, they're like, no, nah, we love giving warfarin. And then as soon as the PCCs came out and made warfarin obsolete, they're like, release the DOACs. You know, if you say direct acting oral anticoagulant really fast backward, <laughs> it sounds like no more warfarin. I don't know if you if you, yeah, if you could get back to that record player. <laughs> That's yeah, a, it's like you reverse the spinach. Yeah. Anyway, you know, the DOACs are awesome and they, you know, they allow us to, you know, I think, well, first of all, they have lots of indications, right? But I think in the ED, we use them for blood clots more than anything, not so much for non-valvular AFib, that's sort of in the sphere of cardiology. And the innovation of the DOACs, of course, allows us to discharge people right away rather than the old, really inefficient practice of admitting them or putting them in an observation unit to teach them how to use Lovenox and then, you know, bridge them over to warfarin. So it's great. But up until recently, I don't think, certainly I haven't really considered which DOAC is best, particularly comparing the apixaban versus rivaroxaban. In my head, they've sort of been same, same, you know, whichever one the drug rep gave you the pad for, that's the one you do. Joking, of course. So apixaban commonly known as Eliquis, is the, the competitor to Rivaroxaban, commonly known as Xarelto. There are currently no head-to-head trials published comparing the two medications, either in terms of VTE prevention or recurrent VTE prevention, or bleeding risk. So when you don't have trials, use observational data, and that's what these authors did. They use real-world claims data to estimate the rate of subsequent VTE and bleeding between these two agents for people with a new diagnosis of VTE. Study was not funded by a manufacturer, and they used this Optum data set, which is this enormous data set of claims and some clinical information from commercially insured patients in the United States, like United Healthcare's like research data set. They identified 50,000 patients who received a new diagnosis of VTE and new prescription for either one of these two agents. And to be included, the patients had to have no previous diagnosed history of VTE, and the data are recent from 2015 through 2020. They then matched 18,000 apixaban users with 18,000 rivaroxaban users using propensity score strategies that incorporated 45 observable variables, and then used that to determine the proportion of each of those groups that developed one of the outcomes, either a recurrent VTE diagnosis or a diagnosis of a significant bleeding event. Results. Ready? Apixaban wins in a landslide, which is, I wouldn't have guessed. I would have thought that it would be same, same. The adjusted hazard ratio for recurrent venothromboembolism was 0.7 for apixaban compared to the rivaroxaban group, and apixaban was similarly associated 
with lower bleeding risk than rivaroxaban with a hazard ratio of 0.6. The authors conduct a host of very sophisticated sensitivity analyses that pretty much all reinforced the findings. And just, you know, hazard ratios aren't necessarily intuitive in terms of, you know, our ability to understand what that means clinically. What that translates to in terms of rates is the incidence of bleeding is 7 per 100 patient years in the apixaban group versus 11 per 100 years in the rivaroxaban group. And the incidence of recurrent VTE is 9 in the apixaban group versus 11 in the rivaroxaban group. It should be noted, if you'll recall, when we were doing the paper selection, that there was another article on exactly this topic in JAMA this month that we didn't cover so as to not have two articles on this exact same topic that showed the exact same results, even though it looked at a different data set. That particular article was looking at the Medicare data set, so people over 65. This one uses you know, sort of the commercially insured data set, so it's a little bit different, but the results were the same favoring apixaban both in terms of recurrent VTE and in terms of recurrent bleeding. Finally, there's been a meta-analysis done that did show an increased risk of bleeding with rivaroxaban compared to apixaban, but there hadn't been any that showed recurrent VTE risk because it just hasn't been studied very often. Oh, and there is one other thing I want to bring up. I looked on clinicaltrials.gov and there is a trial that's putting apixaban head-to-head with rivaroxaban with these two outcomes as their final outcomes, but it's not anticipated to be done with enrollment until the end of 2023. So it's going to be several years before we have those data. So for me, you know, this is not the world's, you know, highest quality of evidence, but it is the best evidence in the world. And it really gives me pause when I'm thinking about just sort of choosing randomly between apixaban and rivaroxaban and for me, this is going to give me probably enough to just, you know, err on the side of a Pixaban until that randomized control trial comes out yeah, or more think, data becomes available. You know, I think when Mike and I do the paper selection every month, it's sometimes easy, sometimes we're heated, sometimes, <laughs> you know, but I think every once in a while we come across a paper, where we both sort of stop and go like, that's a thing? Like what neither one of us had really thought about this before. Yeah. And then we're like, wait, it's two things. It was <laughs> two papers, like yeah. two potential papers for this month. Yeah. So yeah, I think. I had never thought about this before, never even heard of it, and I'm surprised. Yeah, and I I think I'm going to change my practice from random selection to a Pixabam first until I hear otherwise. Editor's commentary. This is real-world claims data analyzed using strong, unbiased econometric techniques that shows a Pixaban use is associated with lower risk of recurrent VTE and bleeding compared with rivaroxaban. The findings are limited because of the observational design, but the findings are consistent with other studies in different populations and seriously suggest apixaban is a superior option to rivaroxaban for patients with VTE. Quick take. Abstract number 11. Syncope in PE, a retrospective cohort study. This is by Richmond et al., from Postgraduate Medical Journal. Mike, you aware? Have we ever covered Postgraduate Medical Journal before? Uh, I've read Postgraduate Medical Journal before. You have? I have, because they have a lot of like little interesting... They're not usually studies, though, They're as I recall. Spoiler alert! Uh-oh. <laughs> this one may not be a study either. Oh, yeah, they're because it's usually like management of abscess or something. It's like yeah. a little primer or something. So... This whole thing, right, this syncope and PE thing is very irritating. And it all started with this 
PESIT trial, the Pulmonary Embolism in Syncope Italian trial published in New England Journal New of England Medicine, Journal of Medicine, where the authors concluded that 17% or one in six patients hospitalized for syncope actually had a PE. This does not seem concordant at all with everybody on Earth's clinical practice, and there's been a great deal of effort by other sort of research groups since this paper aiming to refute the idea that all patients admitted with syncope and no clinical suspicion for PE still need a PE workup. Right, because as a rule, the risk of anything when people are admitted for syncope is less than about 5%. Yeah, <laughs> well said. So when other groups have looked at this, they have reported a PE prevalence in patients admitted to syncope more like 1% on a high end. So in this study, the authors from Scotland look at this issue in kind of a backwards fashion. This is, you know, like Mike said, it's a bit of an odd journal. It's actually kind of written more like prose than yeah. it is in scientific speak. But they conducted a retrospective cohort study of 244 consecutive patients who got a D-dimer and a CTPA and a PE, and they looked through the charts for clinical features that included syncope. They don't give any methods and specifically say this could be a first on the EMA program, specifically say they did not seek IRB approval for this, for their efforts. So they kind of say, this is what we did. <laughs> we'll just take it or leave it, right? Syncope was observed in about 10% of cases, but this was never the sole presenting feature. In fact, almost all the patients who had syncope and PE were hypoxic and had EKG abnormalities suggestive of PE. Now, the impact of this paper is very limited by the fact that there are no methods, and they don't start with a population of people being worked up for syncope, but rather those who have a PE, right? They're doing this backwards look, right? Saying, if you had a PE and syncope, what'd you look like, you know? So there's no way to estimate the prevalence of PE here in syncope patients or use the data to tell us which patients with syncope should get a PE workup. But their findings do sit well with my clinical intuition that if a PE is really the cause of the syncope, then I expect to see something, some clinical sign, some EKG change, something that make me think this is probably a relatively large PE if it caused a syncope. So I'm sort of thinking of this more as like a case series. This is just sort of like, eh, you know, what patient had syncope, what they look like? Were they all these really subtle, subtle things nobody would have got? Or were they all pretty obvious? And in this case, they were pretty obvious. Edit this commentary. I don't think this paper can do much to guide us on which syncope patients need a PE workup. It is more like a case series showing that in their small cohort of patients with PE, syncope was never the only clue to their eventual diagnosis. There's other data out there showing PE to be a cause of syncope in about 1% of admitted patients, and in my opinion, PE workup should be reserved for syncope patients with clinical clues suggesting PE and should not be used indiscriminately for all comers. Quick take. Abstract number 12, Conservative Management of Occult Pneumothorax in Mechanically Ventilated Patients, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis by Smith et al. in the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery, and this is a quick take as well. So, what's going on? More PAN scans equals more occult pneumothoraces. Are we all in agreement on that one? But are we doing more PAN scans? <laughs> it depends compared to when. Because you can't do more compared to how we have been for the last five years. 
Because we have reached the theoretical map. I guess we could do repeat pan scans. It's the only way we could We need more scanners. scanners. (laughs) Well, this is a call for more scanners. (laughs) That's right. So we're finding all these occult pneumothoraces, that is, those that are invisible on chest X-ray, but visible on CT scan and aren't very big. The question is, you know, what to do about them. And I think over time we've become, you know, increasingly used to ignoring them in patients with blunt trauma who are otherwise pretty stable. But what do we do about it if the patient needs to be intubated for some reason or another, either because they have traumatic brain injury or because, you know, they're going to go get a procedure or go to the OR or whatever else? The traditional teaching is that positive pressure ventilation may blow out the pneumothorax, right, and result in a tension pneumothorax or progression of the pneumothorax and a sort of emergent slash emergent need for a chest tube that could complicate management. But we've seen at least a couple of papers that have suggested this may not be necessary and that so long as the pneumothorax was occult and you know, otherwise clinically not relevant, a chest tube can be reserved for those patients whose pneumothorax progresses even if they're mechanically ventilated. So the authors here conduct a meta-analysis of available data on mechanically ventilated patients with occult pneumothorax to estimate the incidence of failure of conservative management in terms of developing a tension pneumothorax or otherwise requiring a delayed chest tube insertion compared with the more traditional strategy of immediate chest tube insertion. They identified 12 studies, three of which were some form of an RCT that involved a total of 354 patients. So not exactly an enormous number of patients, but not tiny. Ultimately, conservative management was associated with a low rate of the development of tension pneumothorax at just over 2% of the time. Overall, the failure rate of conservative management was just 24%. I guess you could look at different ways, right? You could say 24%, one in four, that's kind of high. On the other hand, that means that three quarters of them would not have required a chest tube, which has complications. And in fact, when they look at the complication rate, right, and it's sort of loosely defined here and kind of hard to follow, frankly, because it's there's a lot of heterogeneity and definitions and such, but they say the complication rate was 20% in the aggressive group, the ones who got chest tubes right away, versus only 6% in those who got, you know, sort of the selective chest tube for only if their pneumothorax progressed or they developed tension. Taken all together, these findings indicate that conservative management without chest tube insertion is appropriate as a first-line treatment for mechanically ventilated patients with occult pneumothorax. The current iteration of ATLS generally allows for this approach. It basically lets you choose your own adventure on this one. You can put a chest tube in, or you can monitor the patients carefully. Obviously, they need to be monitored carefully, but they're intubated, so presumably they're in a, you know, an OR or an ICU where that's you know, not that difficult to do. And some people have even advocated for, if you're doing this, you got a pneumothorax and the patient's mechanically ventilated and you're going to manage them conservatively, you should put a sign up by the bedside, say that they have a non-decompressed pneumothorax in case something goes bad so that people are aware and they don't spend too much time mucking around with the tubes and they put you know, the needle thoracostomy or tube thoracostomy right away. Please remember, this only speaks to occult pneumothoraces, not pneumothoraces that are easily visible on chest x-ray those should almost always be treated with catheter insertion for patients undergoing mechanical ventilation. Edit this commentary. This meta-analysis demonstrates that a large majority of occult pneumothoraces in patients mechanically ventilated can be managed conservatively and chest tube insertion reserved for those who deteriorate 
or whose pneumothorax progresses. About one-fourth will progress to require said catheter insertion. Quick take. Abstract number 13. Normal saline solution or LR solution to enhance lactate clearance in septic patients after initial resuscitation in the ED, a retrospective cohort trial. And this is by Limapichat et al. from Open Access Emergency Medicine. And this one is also a quick take, three in a row. Elevated lactate levels suggest an imbalance between oxygen delivery and tissue consumption, and it has been suggested that septic shock patients with persistently elevated lactate levels due to decreased clearance may have worse outcomes, including higher mortality, although this suggestion has not been proven to be definitively true. Here, the authors conduct a retrospective study from the ED of a single hospital in Thailand, including adult patients with sepsis and initial serum lactate elevated at above 2 millimoles per liter that had a second lactate available within six hours to see if type of fluid they got affected lactate clearance rate. After excluding patients with end-stage renal disease, heart failure, and those who had received less than 500 cc's of total volumes and not that much fluid, those who got both LR and NS, they were just trying to find a cohort where they had one or the other, and those were missing data or lost to follow-up, which was a pretty high number, 63 they had missing data on, considering they only had 120 patients for analysis. I see. This is an observational study. 100 of the patients got NS and 20 got LR. Essentially, they found a small difference in lactate clearance rates favoring LR at two hours, but the confidence estimates were massive. And at four hours, the findings seemed to flip, favoring the other fluid. As expected, the groups were not well-matched at baseline. This is not a trial, with the NS group looking much sicker on pretty much every metric. Also, the amount of fluid given was not that much. You know, they were sort of like, oh, under 500, we don't include them, that's not that much. The LR group got 750, a little bit more than that, and the NS group got a liter. And finally, again, like I said, this is not a trial. And per table one, it does seem like there was evidence of, you know, doctors choosing to give NS to the sicker patients. This is not a great study. And in truth, it's probably going to serve more hypothesis generating than anything else, where somebody might actually do a trial here and see if we can clear lactate. Or at least a cleaner retrospective analysis. Yeah, good point. Editor's commentary. In this retrospective study, the authors conclude there is no difference in lactate clearance between LR and NS and septic patients, but I feel there are way too many flaws in the study to put real faith in their findings. The question is an interesting one, and maybe this group or another group will follow this up with a trial to shed insight into the answer. Abstract number 14. Single-site sampling versus multi-site sampling for blood cultures, a retrospective clinical study. This is by Larson et al., and it's in the Journal of Clinical Microbiology. And this one's a little different. You know, obtaining blood cultures, of course, is common in the ED, and it's part of the sepsis bundle that we've all become familiar with over the past 10 years or so. I was surprised to learn, after reading the introduction here, that there's actually quite a bit of controversy on how to collect blood for such cultures. So two sets of blood cultures is the standard, and I think we all know that. You click that button, it says two sets of blood cultures. Each set consists of one aerobic and one anaerobic tube. Forgive me if I'm insulting your intelligence. Why two? Well, 
the false negative rate is way higher when only one set is collected. That's one thing. The false negative rate is also elevated when there is only a small volume of blood per tube. So if you have more than 10 cc's of blood, that increases the yield. The false positive rate, so basically the contamination rate, is higher when proper skin prep is not performed. These things are kind of obvious. Traditionally, the two sets of blood culture order means that the nurse will collect the blood from two different sites, and that's what they're calling the multi-site sampling strategy. And this has also been one way to help determine if the culture result is due to contamination. So if it's like skin floor that comes out of two of the tubes from one of the sites and not in the other, that adds to the evidence that that's the case. However, the authors note that there's no evidence that obtaining blood from two sites decreases the contamination effect or ability to detect it. Rather, they suggest that it might double the contamination rate because now the phlebotomist has twice as many opportunities to not clean the skin correctly. Further, the yield of true blood cultures may be lower because one of the sites might not work well, and then the volume of blood collected won't be very much, or they'll start poking around in the second site and the patient will be like, stop it, that hurts, you already did this, and the nurse or phlebotomist will abandon it and say, you know, I've already got one. And so it will increase the probability of only getting one set of blood cultures instead of getting both sets of blood cultures, if that all makes sense. So enter the single site sampling method in which you just take all four bottles, two sets from one site. This reduces the number of needle sticks, which might lead to higher yields and lower contamination rates. The authors here report on their center's experience with a wholesale change in protocol going from multi-site sampling to single site sampling in 2017. And they do a comparison of the yield of blood cultures and contamination rates from ED patients in the year before and after this change in practice. So it's quasi-experimental design. What'd they find? The number of people in the ED who got blood cultures was shockingly almost identical year on year. I mean, like it was 53-64 in the year before the change and 52-48 in the year after. So very, very stable number of people getting blood cultures. However, the yield of positive blood cultures was higher in the single site sampling year. It was just about 20%. And it wasn't enormously higher. It was 17% in the multi-site sampling cohort. Contamination rates were likewise extremely similar, really quite identical. 1.6% before the protocol change and 1.6% after the protocol change. The authors did a further analysis and found that the average volume of blood in each tube was significantly higher in the single-site sampling period compared with the multi-site sampling period, and that the number of single blood culture sets was much lower when they went to the single-site sampling method. Again, I'm sure that has to do with the nurses being able to just draw that blood and not having to restick the patient and have the patient object or just not be able to get it. Ultimately, the authors are arguing that by doing single-site sampling strategies, you can have your cake and eat it too, right? Fewer sticks, higher yield, similar contamination rates with the single-site technique. And, you know, although this isn't strictly like emergency clinician, the nursing staff is going to decide along with the sort of lab staff, you know, what your hospital is going to do. I thought this was really interesting and something I had just never seen before and something that I think, you know, we'll probably start to see a little bit more of going into the future. How much of the, this is really cool, yeah. obviously. How much of this do you think could be due to just the fact that when they made the change, 
they kind of like put blood culture importance in everybody's radar. Hey, we're we're doing something different here. Something pay attention. Do a good job. Like well, you, uh, you yeah. know, you can never know on that kind of stuff. You're absolutely right. This is still just quasi experimental before after, and there could have been other stuff. And frankly, the reporting out of this isn't that great. They don't show like the time trends over. You know, like mm. was it already dropping as you sort of hit the protocol change? Because a lot of times people get wind. Oh, they're paying attention to our high right. level of contamination. We need to, you know, get our acts together and stuff. So it is conceivable that that's really what it's about. But I would say, so what, right? I would have expected that it might flip it, right? And make it worse. Single site was worse than multi-site. You know, if it's the same, I'm not arguing that it's better necessarily, but if it's roughly the same and you stick less, you know, then why wouldn't you do it this way? Again, not earth shattering or, or not the highest levels of evidence, but you know, it's pretty definitely pretty cool. Editor's commentary. This is a quasi experimental study demonstrating the yield of blood cultures is higher using a single site sampling strategy compared with a two site strategy that is more typical. The results are far from conclusive as the study is from a single institution and does not have a true control group but the results are interesting and may pave a way for a better blood culture procurement process. Abstract number 15. Resource utilization and outcomes among children risk stratified by Pediatric Appendicitis Risk Calculator at a Tertiary Pediatric Center. This is by Becker et al. from Academic Emergency Medicine. Although several risk stratification tools exist to aid in the management of working up a patient with possible appendicitis in a pediatric setting, the Pediatric Appendicitis Risk Calculator, or the PARC, appears to be the most useful and has been validated in both community and academic settings. The PARC has eight variables in it, sex, age, duration of pain, guarding, pain migration, maximal tenderness in the right lower quadrant, pain with walking, and white blood cell count with the absolute neutrophil count, which is on a continuous scale. And because it's on a continuous scale, this is not like, you know, yes, no, no, and you get six out of seven or whatever. It's actually a calculator, so you have to use MDCalc or something like that, and through its proprietary algorithm, it spits out a percentage chance that the patient has appendicitis. But in fairness, even for things like Nexus, we use MDCalc. (laughs) Well, fair. Fair enough. That's true. But this one you couldn't do off the top of your head, even if you wanted to. The objective of this prospective observational study was to describe resource utilization and clinical outcomes among children with an appendix ultrasound scan. So they got the ultrasound scan, who were risk stratified by a PARC score. So they enrolled kids aged 5 to 19 from a single PEDS ED who presented with acute abdominal pain and had an ultrasound to evaluate for appendicitis. And they said that the score was calculated for study purposes only, but then when they present the results, that part gets a little bit muddy. But I don't think it has a huge impact on their findings. Over 13 months, a total of just over 1,500 patients had a rule-out appendicitis ultrasound. Of those, half were approached by the RAs. And of those, 407 met inclusion criteria and were enrolled. So this is, at the end of the day, about 400 patients. The mean age was 11 years, 49% male, and 33% ended up having appendicitis. Of those with a PARC score of less than 15%, that's the low category. PARC does like an ultra low or very low and then a low. 
So you kind of group those together. A less than 15%, the observed rate of appendicitis was 3.3%. And on the other end of the spectrum, those with a PARC score of greater than 85%, the observed rate of appendicitis was 96.8%. So it works pretty well at the extremes, but I think we knew that already. That's like what PARC is supposed to do. Interestingly, almost half of the ultrasounds were equivocal, and just over half of the patients were hospitalized. And when you say equivocal, you mean they didn't show something one way or the other. That's it wasn't right. like, oh, there's some tubular thing that's not, comp-. it was just. It wasn't definitively positive, a non-compressible tubular structure, and it wasn't definitively negative, looks totally clean. Got it. So okay. half of them were indeterminate, which is. Seems a little high. Like that's kind know. of a high number. I feel like number. that's what the literature usually shows. Yeah, but at a tertiary PZD, you know, where they're doing yes, if you take, you know, every hospital in the world, I think that's probably right, but it seems a little high to me. Okay. 37% of the overall cohort was rated as low risk or less than 15% by PARC. So that is good, you know, because a lot of the criticism of some of these rule sets is, ah, they just say everybody's in the middle somewhere. Right. No, this did a pretty good job. So a third of them were actually low risk. They present some cost data and show that charges were lowest for patients in the low-risk PARC group and highest for patients in the high-risk PARC group at about $3,000 and $18,000 respectively. Now, although they provide a lot of data in this paper and present the findings in lots of different ways, there's lots of tables and different ways of looking at the data, I personally would have liked to see them provide some data by PARC score in patients with equivocal ultrasounds. Right, so if these patients made up the bulk of the costs or the admissions, but were not found to have appendicitis, you're like, ah, oh, you know, it's for just the ones who are equivocal, right? If the park was, we admitted all of them then, and they still, the park score worked really well in those people and could have helped us a little bit. I think that would have been something novel. Like, I think I would have been like, oh, that's pretty cool. Cause like you said, maybe at RED, it's not 50%, but it's a lot. Mm-hmm. So if, if I kind of flip my brain on it and go, okay, the ultrasound's equivocal, let's do this park. You know, in that sort of cohort, how well did this do? And they don't give that, unfortunately. But that, I would be like, okay, that impacts cost and care. But they didn't give it. They conclude that we're spending a lot of money on low-risk patients. And while I generally might agree, we do need to remember that the denominator here was patients who got an ultrasound, right? So we don't know how many patients didn't have imaging, who maybe they did a park score and they're like, you're low, we're just going to send you home, you know? Like, and may, so maybe it was even more than like what it would be if they did some cost estimate. Right, but they're just but, saying a full-scale rollout of the park could reduce imaging further yes. in costs, so, you know, in the ultrasound and all that kind of stuff, which is, you know, fair, I maybe, suppose. Maybe, maybe not, right? Because maybe patients who would have got sent home before are now going to get something else, right? Maybe they'll get obs or something. We don't know, right? So it's hard to fair. know what a full-scale rollout would result in. But, you know, if you want to use a clinical decision instrument, PARC is the one, I think, for pediatric appendicitis. Although I have, I could say I've never used it in the clinical areas, and I kind of decided to mess with it a little bit on MD Calc, which mm-hmm. have you ever used it? No. It's kind of interesting, actually, because like I said, it just gives you a percentage at the end of the day. If you don't have a high white count, it is really difficult to be high category on part. It's almost impossible. But you can get into the medium category. It's really difficult. Even Mm. if you say yes to everything, migration of pain, stuff like that. If you're like a, a young kid, like five years old, you're still in a very low risk. So it really puts a lot of emphasis. If you click that white count of 15 or something with like a left shift, you all of a sudden go up to 85% risk. It's a big difference. I'd never really messed with the park before, but. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, You know, I got to say, 
My experience with appendicitis is more in adults than in peds. Obviously, we work in a general emergency department. So, but you know, my last two appies. Not normal like white from, counts. Yeah, like two days ago had normal white counts. They were yeah, we know that. Yeah. I just had never messed with it on that level. Now, I and I, I found it kind of strange considering yeah. this is supposed to be the best one. Yeah, no, yeah. Very interesting. Editor's commentary. In this prospective study, the authors present cost data for pediatric patients with suspected appendicitis based on risk categorization with the PARC score. But the meat of their findings is really another validation of the score itself. It's up to you to decide if the appendicitis rate in the low-risk group is truly low enough for you to not warrant imaging. As an FYI, to calculate the score, you do need a white blood cell count. And after playing with the calculator online, I can tell you this value makes a huge impact on the final score. Abstract number 16, design and implementation of an agitation code response team in the emergency department by Wong et al. in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. And this is a really great manuscript. And I choose the word manuscript intentionally here because it's really just an okay study. But the descriptions and discussions of what they did at Yale to improve their approach to agitated patients is really worth reading. I'll do my best to summarize it, but we'll surely not do it justice. So apologies to Dr. Wong at all who put in so much work here, but it's really great read. At issue is the problem of overuse of restraints. We know that restraint use can be dangerous and is associated with episodes of respiratory depression, musculoskeletal injury, and psychological trauma. For these reasons, CMS puts pretty stringent documentation requirements and limits on restraint use. And JCO, you know, over the Joint Commission, you know, that's always a point of emphasis, the restraint documentation use, etc. Despite all of this, physical restraints are estimated to be used maybe 30% too often. Okay, obviously they're necessary sometimes, but 30% overuse is sort of what you see bantered about in the literature. In addition, we've recently seen a couple of studies that have demonstrated a racial bias in restraint use with black men being restrained at a much higher rate than other groups, even after controlling for observed patient and diagnostic conditions. So the authors note that a lot of hospitals view escalations in agitation symptoms primarily as a security threat, which of course it is a security threat in addition to a medical issue. But as a result, security personnel respond and may take leadership roles in the management of that escalation. And of course, we're happy to have their help, but security personnel are not trained to necessarily distinguish mental health crises, intoxication, and delirium from other forms of aggression or workplace violence, basically criminal behavior, right? So they're not making that distinction. And they tend to do, I mean, I'm I'm sure we've all sat there and watched this, they tend to issue commands like, calm down, sir. And, you know, the delirious, intoxicated, whatever patient is like not capable of responding to that. And then they respond with whatever else they got in their toolkit, which typically is muscles and like handcuffs and physical restraints. And that's sort of what they've got. So if they're in charge, that's what they're going to use. Other things like verbal de-escalation coupled with stimulus reduction techniques and sedatives can calm the situation without the need for more aggressive restraint measures. But really, only the clinical care team can provide these types of environmental and medical options, and if they're not in charge, they can't provide them. The authors described their development of a behavioral response team for agitated and violent patients in the ED 
and then describe the change in physical restraint use before and after the rollout of this sort of code agitation response team. Again, I won't do it justice, but they developed a work group that consisted of a physician lead, a nursing lead, security personnel, members of the pharmacy team, psychiatric team, with the overarching point being to respond as a team that had a shared model for achieving a safe situation that would use medical and security insight and not have the medical approach lag behind the security approach. Ultimately, they created a response system that could basically be activated by anyone caring for an agitated patient or activated from the field for incoming agitated patients. The team itself, because what I described was sort of the development team, the team in the clinical space consisted of a physician, a nurse, security, and backup nurses and security. They rolled out this program and tracked restraint use over a several-year period using an interrupted time series analysis. The results are probably what you'd expect. During the pre-phase, the rate of restraint use was high and stable at about 20 restraints per 1,000 ED patient visits. During the development phase, which was actually quite prolonged, it literally took about two years to develop this whole team and get it implemented, the rate of restraint use began dropping. No doubt this is because they started discussing this and maybe there was some, you know, as often as the case, there were some sentinel events or something that demanded a response. The use of restraint started dropping. And then once the team was initiated, the drop continued such that at the end of the study period in July 2021, they were down to 10 restraints per 1,000 patient visits. So a 50% decline, which is very low. From a methodologic perspective, the study's limited. It's single site, and there's plain evidence that the agitation response team did not directly cause the reduction in restraint use as the reduction started well before the full rollout of the team and other interventions were likely occurring concurrently. My guess is that the ongoing leadership initiative to reduce restraint use emphasizing a shared approach was the driver more than the strict adherence to the agitation code type of you know, overhead event. Still, I think the core message which I think they emphasize nicely in the paper, the core message that developing a multi-specialty intervention strategy for agitation response is the right thing to do. More work will be needed to understand the impact on disparities in restraint use, complications from restraint use, and possible effects, negative effects on worker safety. For example, it may be they use less restraints, but more nurses got punched in the face. And that's just not assessed at all. But this is a good start. And it's a nice way of approaching these sort of complex multidisciplinary issues in the emergency department. Editor's commentary. This is an excellent manuscript describing the development and rollout of an agitation response team in the emergency department, jointly planned and led by clinician and security personnel. The project resulted in a coherent agitation response that seemingly was associated with a very sharp decline in restraint use and affirms the importance of multimodal interventions involving stakeholders with more diverse skill sets to solve complex ED problems. Abstract number 17. Sonographically Occult Abscesses of the Buttock and Perineum in Children. This is by Nelson et al. from Pediatric Emergency Care. Skin and soft tissue infections are common in the ED, and differentiating between an abscess and cellulitis is important because the treatment for them is very different, right? One requires source control. Wait, hold on, I'm taking notes. Yeah, take some notes here. 
And if undiagnosed, an untreated abscess can lead to prolonged symptoms and potentially a worse clinical course. But differentiating the two can be difficult, right? And although many in the emergency medicine world have turned to ultrasound for the answer to this dilemma, existing literature on the topic, which we have covered on EMAs, shows that it may not be as helpful as we would like it to be in situations when the provider is really unsure about whether there's pus in there to drain or not. In the introduction section to this paper, the authors explain that they routinely use ultrasound in the evaluation of potential abscesses, but were sort of troubled by the anecdotal high number of false negatives, cases in which the ultrasound, formal, their formal ultrasound was read as negative, but then they took pus out shortly after that ultrasound exam. So because of this, this sort of angst, they conduct a retrospective cohort study of patients with soft tissue infections of the buttock or perineum from an urban academic ED who got a formal ultrasound looking for a fluid collection. The chart review methods, unfortunately, are pretty scant, but they do something to record demographic and clinical information with a secondary goal of defining patient level or clinical characteristics like fever, duration of symptoms, something like that, that might predispose a kid to having a sonographically occult abscess. The primary outcome was defined as a wound culture with growth of a pathogen within 48 hours of the ultrasound. A negative ultrasound was defined as normal, cellulitis only, that was also considered negative, a phlegmon or fluid collection less than a centimeter. So if there was fluid that was small, they called it negative. Hmm. Now, they explain that this is what would normally be treated by an IND. They're like, if it's less than a centimeter, we probably wouldn't go for it. The authors cite some ultrasound literature here, kind of backing up their choice on this, but I don't love it, and I think it has a huge impact on their findings. A total of just over 200 patients with a normal ultrasound. They were just over 50% African-American. 40% male, median age of 23 months, these were little kids, and half of them had a fever. In terms of the primary outcome, 28% had a culture collected within 48 hours that grew a pathogen. Over half of those had their culture obtained in the first four hours after the ultrasound. The ultrasound came back, quote-unquote negative, and within four hours, they already had drained pus out and actually grew something back. Because I'm not confident in the methods by which the data was obtained for these different variables that they put into the regression, I don't really think we should spend too much time talking about it. They say history of MRSA and duration of symptoms less than four days were associated with a sonographically occult abscess, but let's just push it to the side for now. The false negative rate for ultrasound has not been clearly described, and I know it's real. I know false negatives are real, but their findings seem high. This may be due to the population of kids, like it's just all done in little, little kids, like 23 months old. Maybe there's some technical difficulty, or maybe the technical difficulty is because of the location, these like perineum buttock abscesses, maybe it's hard to know. I'm not sure, but it also could be related to the fact that in the normal ultrasounds, quote unquote normal, right? They called negative. 36% 36% had a fluid collection, right. less than 30, a centimeter. Yeah, that's just And nice. they don't tell us of the sonographically yeah. occult ones, how many of them were the ones that had it fluid like in there? It seems like such an obvious analysis to do is just switch that to a positive and then redo the analysis but or they didn't a sensitivity do it. check. And they didn't do it. 
So it's very possible here that all the maybe the ultrasound is actually awesome. Yeah. You know, and all we're reporting on is the fact that we decide to drain pus no matter how small the fluid collection or they do at this site. Right. So that's and like we're right because we get something. That's the big, big limitation on this one. Now, on the flip side, also, we don't know how many INDs were done. Could have been even more than this because they're just reporting on positive cultures. And it is not, at least where I work, it is not common practice to send a culture every time I drain an abscess. So they might have all gotten IND. Yeah. Or I have like no clue what the abscess rate was here. So there's some limitations. I know false negatives are real. I wish this added a little bit more to my understanding of what the false negative rate is. Edit this commentary. In this retrospective chart review of kids with skin and soft tissue infections of the buttocks and perineum, with marginal methods, the authors report a sonographically occult abscess rate of 28%. I know we are still trying to figure out test characteristics of ultrasound for abscess, but this false negative rate seems too high to me, and is likely due either to technical difficulties with the exam or inaccurate definitions of the outcomes they are looking at. House of Medicine. Quick take. Abstract number 18, the impact of nighttime on first pass success during the emergent endotracheal intubation of critically ill patients by Fine et al. in the Journal of Intensive Care Medicine. And this is a quick take. I really wanted to like this article. I do not. It's kind of goofy in the end. The authors are looking at how night intubation success differs from day intubation success. And they retrospectively look at all the intubations not performed in the ED or the OR at three campuses of Montefiore Medical Center from 2016 through 2019. The research methods are not well described. At this institution, the critical care team responds. It's really not emergency medicine. They respond to these airway codes, and that's basically ICU faculty, fellows, and house staff. Through their methods, they identified just under 3,000 airway codes, of which 1,600 occurred during the daytime hours, and 1,200 occurred at night. There were significant differences between the patients requiring intubation during the day and night and which techniques were used. For example, nighttime intubations were more likely to be in cardiac arrest codes. Nighttime airways were less likely to get paralytic agents, even after you exclude the cardiac arrest code. So that's a little bit weird. And somewhat paradoxically, the nighttime intubators were more likely to be attendings which I would not have thought at an academic center. The overwhelming majority of those intubators were not anesthesiology trained, which is probably worth emphasizing because it's critical care team and they could be all anesthesiologists, like 95% of them. Overall, patients were intubated on the first pass 76% of the time. And after adjustment for some of those baseline differences, the odds of first pass success were lower at night with an adjusted odds ratio of 0.83, which they say was statistically significant. So, you know, this is clear and compelling evidence that we need to have patients stop needing airways in the middle of the night. I really don't know how this applies, if at all, to emergency medicine and how our practices were different than the folks upstairs were on shifts, they're on these sort of long calls, etc. I'm not sure if this reflects less well-trained personnel being available at night. You know, I had rarely seen studies on nighttime performance, so I thought we should include it and keep it in the database for future reference. That's about it. Editor's commentary.
This is a small retrospective study showing an association between nighttime and a reduced odds of first-pass success during endotracheal intubation. Abstract number 19. Analysis of timed dispo intervals during early and late parts of an ED shift. This is by Stenson et al. from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. So timed dispo is an important metric for measuring ED throughput. And although many factors have been described previously that could potentially impact this value, to date, according to the authors, no one has evaluated a provider's breakdown of dispositions by hour of shift. One baseline piece of knowledge that has been described previously is that generally speaking, and I think it's important to kind of set the stage here, and we all can relate to what I'm about to tell you, providers see a large bolus of patients in the first few hours of a new shift followed by kind of like a, a medium sort of steady state, and then a lower rate of new patient pickups as the shift goes on, gradually declining till the end of your shifts. You see a lot when you first get there, you get really busy, then you kind of get in the middle steady state, picking up some new ones, and then it kind of goes down to nothing near the end. They report on over 50,000 patient visits from a single academic center over a one-year period, and basically divide them into two groups. Patients who were seen in the first four hours of a resident shift, this is all done with residents, or those who were seen in the second four hours of a resident shift. The early group consisted of about 32,000 patients, and the late group of about 19,000 patients. So that is consistent with sort of what we think. They're seeing a lot more early in the shift than they are late in the shift. Overall, patients seen in the early half had a longer median time to dispo than those seen in the later half. 3.25 hours versus 2.62 hours. The median time to dispo was progressively shorter for every hour of shift starting at 3.25 in the first hour down to just over two hours for patients seen in hour eight. So they kind of have a table, hour by hour by hour and time to dispo. Now my initial instinct was, this is probably due because at the end of the shift, there's picking up easier yeah, patients. Yeah, you're selecting. Picking up like, you know, ankle toe, sprains yeah. and stuff like that. But they do present the patient-level data for hour to hour to hour, and it didn't seem that way. They actually look really similar across the time periods. So, you know, maybe this is a bit like, you know, I'm thinking about where Mike and I work, where they see residents in kind of like a north area, like, yeah. you know, where it's like kind of a normal ED pod. You just see what gets put in your Yeah, pod. you don't have a choice. You, know, you don't really have a choice. Maybe that's what it's like, but I'm not sure. In the discussion, the authors suggest that their findings are likely due to a combination of things, including having less new flow interrupting tasks later in the shift. You know, you're getting less new patients. You can really focus on the ones you have because kind of everything else is a little bit more of a steady state. And maybe a desire to decrease the work or cognitive load placed on the oncoming provider. Want to have clean signouts. You know, want to have clean dispose. They make decisions a little bit cleaner. And then, of course, they don't talk about it, but we can't forget about the highly motivating desire to leave on time leave on at time. the end of your shift. So there are lots of limitations here, including that the data is from a single site. The providers were all residents. We don't really know how the sign-out process worked exactly. I wish they'd kind of gone into that a little bit. Like, is it just like at you know, 8 p.m. when the you sign out everything, regardless, you're kind of expected to stay and do some dispos? I don't really know. And we also don't know if you know, I'm kind of thinking about it from both ends. Okay, are the quicker dispos seen at the end of the shift a sign that we can do better if we sort of, you know, decrease our influx or really focus or have a goal of getting out on time? Or 
are we making like a little right. bit risky decisions, decisions at yeah. the end of the shift because we want to leave on time and there's no outcome data from the two groups. So I think it's interesting. It was worth talking about, but probably at the end of the day, what you do at the end of your shift depends on what you do at the end of the shift. If yeah. you're sticky, if you have an ability to choose easier patients, if you can sort of get a skip round where you work, if you get some sick patients but or there, what's expected and sign But there out. is really, I mean, there's all the pressures are to go faster at the end of your shift, right? I mean, there's nothing that's, that works in the opposite direction, which says, oh, take your time at the end of your shift, right? So I think that part, whether it's, you know, okay, select easier cases or hurry up or whatever it is, all of our pressures do push us in that. And that does demand a little bit of a response from like, how are we going to do this? And I know, you know, the sort of, I think, best practice these days is to then do waterfall shifts, right? So that there's always somebody who's coming in and taking their time and all that kind of stuff. But that's not always practical. So if I, it, you yeah. know, the real question is, is there some way to get to a right space, well, some intervention? Is, you know, but, but then our expectations kind of shift too, because there's a lot of places implementing these waterfall shifts and stuff. You may have like three hours of overlap, but then mentally in your head, you're kind of like, okay, my shift is 11 to 11. The next guy comes in at eight. I should be done by eight. You still kind of like, well, they don't know. shift I, your expectations. That, that, but. that might be the case. I'm not sure. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Editor's commentary. In this single site study from an academic center, the authors found that residents had shorter times to dispo in the second half of their shifts compared to the first half. There's no clinical data, so we don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing. My gut feeling is that their findings would vary greatly from site to site based on your sign-out policy and what types of patients are assigned to you later in your shift. But I'm sure their findings are not surprising, as we can all agree getting out on time is a strong motivator and is just good for the soul. Abstract number 20, policed patients, how the presence of law enforcement in the emergency department impacts medical care by Harada et al. in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. And this is really another expertly written manuscript on a fascinating topic, I think. Police are a near constant presence in emergency departments and are absolutely necessary at times to help provide security, give information from event scenes, and obviously to investigate crimes. That said, their presence may lead to uncomfortable and awkward moments for providers and patients. I think we can just sort of pause and go, yeah, that happens. There is almost nothing in the medical literature on this topic. It's amazingly sparse. This is a qualitative study of 20 physicians from three Northern California public emergency departments exploring the underexamined relationship between law enforcement and medical practice in the emergency department. A single interviewer conducted 20 interviews, which were recorded, audio transcribed, and analyzed. Since we don't cover a lot on qualitative analysis, and they do a really nice job of describing things in this, I thought I'd you know, spend a minute describing their process. And basically, the researchers here looked at the first three interviews and coded them with a fully open mind, open coding, if you will. So they code them according to you know, categories and things like that, or whatever they said. Then they organize all of those codes into themes. Okay. And they can use those themes to identify future questions for future interviews that they want to explore in more detail. Ultimately, what you do in this sort of strategy is you keep interviewing people until no more themes develop. You just, you no keep, more new themes. No more new themes. Yeah. What they call that is theme saturation. 
So now you're interviewing people and you're getting the same old responses that you were get, you know, you've been getting. And then you stop the study and you're done. Then you look at the whole thing and you try to figure out some coherent, overarching thematic analysis that gives you like a picture of how this all works out. And that becomes sort of your theory of how law enforcement interacts with personnel, at least from the physician perspective. So like I said, they did this with 30 interviews. They describe the methods brilliantly and do all the sort of state-of-the-art stuff associated with this type of methodology. Ultimately, the presence of law enforcement in the ED was perceived by the physicians as a mixed bag of benefit and harm. Physicians perceived positives that included feeling safer, that law enforcement generally would defer to the treating teams, and that they could provide useful information. The negatives included interruptions in medical care and breaches in privacy and confidentiality, which could affect patients' trust and comprehensive medical care if they're literally in the way or you can't ask the right questions you want or they won't answer right. Physicians express significant barriers to limiting law enforcement access to sensitive patient encounters that was driven by basically a lack of knowledge of policies, procedures, and responsibilities of law enforcement in the emergency department. Other barriers that they cited included intimidation. Not that the, they didn't report like the cops stood there all big and said, get out of my way, but just general intimidation that it's hard to tell somebody with a badge and a gun what to do. You know, that's just not how we're sort of raised in, in American society. They also worry that by removing police, the police may not be there when the stuff hits the fan. So there's all these barriers to limiting access. The authors find that ED physicians view police basically in one of three general ways. And this is sort of their sort of that overarching theme. One, they're viewed sometimes as members of the team, you know, providing support, safety, etc. Sometimes they're viewed as neutral bystanders, just furniture. You know, they're just in the back, they're there in case something happens, but not really paying much attention. And three, they're viewed as outsiders. Sometimes they're just people that should not be in the room. Interestingly, these disparate views weren't just across physicians, but within physicians. That means the same physicians who report that sometimes they're in the way also sometimes see them as allies and part of our care team. The authors conclude that this is all driven by the fact that officers have basically unfettered access to the ED unless providers limit it, and two, that providers have very little understanding of when and how to limit police presence. All this is typically resolved or negotiated case by case, which is very burdensome to ED providers, right? Like having to figure it out time and time again. Is this case the one where I should remove them or not? They basically end their paper by arguing for more explicit policies and procedures that would govern police healthcare interactions. Of course, this is a really limited view of this very complex phenomena that's derived from 20 physicians, no police, at three Northern California hospitals. So it surely doesn't represent the full universe of issues. And this methodology does not in any way allow us to quantify the relative importance of each of these things. That is, do physicians think that the safety effect is a billion times more important than the confidentiality effect. You can't do that with this type of methodology. How often do they actually feel intimidated by police, etc.? Quantifying these things is a clear area for further research. Still, 
I think this is a really interesting thread of study, and much of what they describe really resonated with me, particularly the part about confusion regarding what is legal, ethical, and permissible when it comes to granting or restricting police access to patient care areas. So I really applaud them for this contribution to this very, very understudied area. Editor's Commentary This is a small qualitative study examining physicians' perspectives on their interactions with law enforcement in the ED. Physicians reported mixed attitudes, noting that police presence is helpful in that it provides security and additional historical information, but may be harmful when the police interfere with medical care and or compromise confidentiality. There was enormous confusion about when and how to limit police presence in the ED. Ultimately, this is just a first step in trying to make a more coherent and consistent policy that would govern policing in the ED. Welcome back, EMAers, to the April 2022 Ultra Summary. I'm Jess Monis, and I'm here with the cool, the brilliant, and the very well-spoken Jenny Beck Esme. Hi, Jenny. Oh, hey. I like it. Yeah. How are you? How are you doing? Doing all right. I'm very excited about some of these papers we're talking about here. Yeah, me too. I'm also doing pretty well, all things considered. I'm like, yeah, yeah I'm one third of the way done with chemo. And when I say Amazing. it like- I know. When I say it like that, I feel like I'm really making progress. Yeah. You know, a little bit tired, but I'm hanging in. So pretty good. You know, tired is the name of the game. We were talking before we, put, <laughs> before we hit record. You've got a very special brand of tired. You've got chemo tired. Right, but you've got, got baby, baby tired. not sleeping through the tired. <laughs> yeah, baby not sleeping through the night tired. The whole world has COVID tired right now right. still. So, right. you know, just which brand of tired are you having today? <laughs> right. Like I'll say, to, I'll say to my husband, I'll be like, Aaron, I'm like, I'm, I'm so tired. He's like, yeah, me too. <laughs> like, yeah. Okay. Okay. Sure. okay. <laughs> you know, but there you go. You got like night shift tired, day shift tired. I mean, we're all tired. Right. We're all tired. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully the audience isn't too tired to make it through these papers with us because I think there's some good ones here. Oh, we're going to wake them up. All right, you ready? Wake up. Let's wake do up, it. guys. Here Let's we go. Let's do it. Paper number one, effect of a diagnostic strategy using an elevated and age-adjusted D-dimer threshold on thromboembolic events in emergency department patients with suspected PE, a randomized clinical trial. This paper looked at the combination of PERC, age-adjusted D-dimer, and the years criteria to rule out a PE. Years asks three questions. Is there clinical evidence of a DVT? Is there hemoptysis? And is PE the most likely diagnosis? If no to all of these, the D-dimer threshold is raised to 1,000, and if you're under that, you're done. If the answer is yes to any of the questions, in the original study, the D-dimer had to be under 500 or you got scanned. In this paper, all included patients were PERC positive and the control group excluded a PE using an age-adjusted D-dimer. The intervention group used an age-adjusted D-dimer if yours was positive, and if yours was negative, stuck with the 1,000 threshold. The authors found that age-adjusting the years criteria reduced CTA use by 10%, and that it was non-inferior to the age-adjusted D-dimer alone. Not too bad. Not too bad. Paper number two. 
rapid rule out of myocardial infarction after 30 minutes as an alternative to one hour, the Racing MI cohort study. In much of Europe, myocardial infarction is evaluated using a rapid pathway in which a patient gets a high sensitivity troponin at time zero and at the one hour mark. This study is looking at what happens if you were to move that second troponin up from the one hour mark to the 30 minute mark. And they found that the two approaches were essentially equivalent. The time zero, time 30 minute approach had 100% sensitivity and 96% specificity, which is essentially the same as the one hour approach. The caveat here is that nearly half of the patients neither ruled in or ruled out, but instead ended up in an intermediate observation zone in which they had a mildly elevated troponin and that didn't rise too much. So they ended up needing an additional workup. But these patients were the same regardless of whether you used the 30-minute or the one-hour protocol. Mike gets into the details of some of the limitations of the study, the biggest of which is that most of the patients that were enrolled had chest pain for a while before their presentation. So it's hard to say how well these accelerated pathways would work in someone with super acute chest pain. But it does seem that with the high sensitivity troponins, these rapid approaches are working. Check out the MRAP October 2020 segment, Cardiology Corner, for more on clinical decision instruments. I love it. Anything that brings that time down, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's good. So, I mean, I think we're still doing two hours. We can get it down to an hour, get it down to half an hour. Great. Amazing. Paper number three, development and external validation of the kids TBI tool for managing children with mild traumatic brain injury and intracranial injuries. PCARN helps us decide which children need imaging after trauma, but what level of care do these kids need if a brain injury is found? This paper derives and then validates a decision tool to match the risk of neurologic decompensation to acuity of care. Three major risk factors were identified that automatically bought you the ICU, midline shift, depressed skull fracture, and epidural hematoma. If none of these were present and GCS was abnormal, the level of care could go either way depending on a slew of provider and clinical factors. If GCS was normal, the authors determined that a lower acuity disposition was typically appropriate even in the presence of a subdural hematoma or cerebral contusion. They found this tool to be 100% sensitive, although specificity was only about 25. I think the value here is knowing that not every kid with a subdural has to go to the ICU, although, of course, further validation is needed and your pediatric neurosurgeons have to be on board. That's good to know. I like that. I'm never going to make the dispo decision in isolation on one of these children. You know, I'm probably not the one making the call, whether it's ICU or step down or whatnot, but it's good to know. Paper number four, differentiating central from peripheral causes of acute vertigo in an emergency setting with the HINTS, STANDING, and ABCD2 tests, a diagnostic cohort study. Vertigo is just kind of a never-ending problem for us in the emergency department, and we spend spend so much time covering papers on the workup of this, using the HINTS exam in the emergency department. And generally, we found that while great when done perfectly by the right providers and on the right patients, the HINTS exam is not always looking so great in the ED where we may be doing it in a less than stellar fashion. This paper looks at the HINTS exam as well as the standing algorithm and the ABCD2 score to distinguish central from peripheral causes of vertigo in the ED. They looked at 300 patients who had vertigo and imbalance for less than one week 
and they left out any patient that had an obvious stroke or those who were asymptomatic at the time of evaluation, because remember, they have to be symptomatic right then for the hints to be applied. They had specially trained ED docs evaluate the patient to perform the hints test, the standing algorithm, and the ABCD2 score, and they didn't disclose their findings to the actual treating physician. They found the hints exam done by these specially trained providers was 97% sensitive and 67% specific for all central causes. The standing test was really about the same, 94% sensitive, 75% specific, and the ABCD2 score was only 55% sensitive. This is really supportive of the HINTS exam and the standing algorithm. But again, these clinicians were really well-trained in these tools. So this might mean that it is time for all of us to get really well-trained with these tools because it seems to be consistent in the literature that if done right, they can really be helpful with these difficult cases. Mm. <laughs> I know. Well, <laughs> 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 I'll wait for the next paper saying hints is no good. I'm no, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> paper number five. The ability of Canadian syncope risk score in differentiating cardiogenic and non-cardiogenic syncope, a cross-sectional study. In the never-ending search for the syncope tool to rule them all, we have the Canadian syncope risk score. Swami and Amal Matu talk about it along with a great review on this topic in the Cardiology Corner from January 2021. So, for differentiating cardiac from non-cardiac syncope, the authors in this study found this score to have a sensitivity and specificity of 73%. While this is similar to other external validations, the methods in this paper are obtuse. They claim almost half the patients had cardiogenic syncope, but it's completely unclear how they define that. What I find interesting is that the original paper demonstrated sensitivities in the 90s, while external validations were much, much lower. So, remember, results may vary, and we should wait for external validations before making any drastic changes based on the original study. Okay, good advice. I like it. Paper number six, rivaroxaban versus no anticoagulation for post-discharge thromboprophylaxis after hospitalization for COVID-19, an open-label, multicenter, randomized control trial with the acronym MICHELLE, which I don't really understand unless there's some other, you know, if it was written in another language, but I like it. We'll call it the MICHELLE COVID study. I'm just going to make a study and just be like, this is the JESMO study. (laughs) (laughs) Calling it that. This is the Samantha study. This is the (laughs) Kelly study. Right. (laughs) Venous thromboembolism in COVID patients has vexed us throughout the pandemic. In general, we have settled on patients who are admitted for COVID getting VTE prophylaxis, just like most other admitted patients. This paper looks at whether patients who are admitted for COVID should continue on their prophylactic anticoagulation to prevent any clot that may form during their recovery time. They looked at just over 300 patients and randomized them to either rivaroxaban for 35 days or control group, and patients were assessed for DVT and PE with imaging at 35 days. They used a primary composite endpoint that included symptomatic or fatal PE, asymptomatic VTE that was detected on imaging, and symptomatic arterial clots like strokes or MIs, and cardiovascular death at 35 days. They found this primary endpoint in three times as many patients in the control group as in the anticoagulant group, with the majority of these patients being symptomatic VTEs. So 
prophylactic anticoagulation in this cohort of patients may be beneficial. Keep in mind, though, this isn't your run-of-the-mill COVID patient. These are patients with severe illness who are being discharged from an inpatient stay, not the patients we're seeing and discharging from the ED. So what you're saying is don't write a script for every patient that pops in with cut, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, but good to know. Good to know. Good to know. Good to know. I mean, really, it's going to explain why maybe patients who are coming back in after their discharge are on this medication. You know, maybe their inpatient team discharged them on it and you're like, why the heck are you on Rivaroxaban? Well, this would probably be why. Right. And also a question that's good to ask if somebody was recently hospitalized with COVID, if they come in with, say, like a head injury, right? And maybe their medications weren't reviewed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Paper number seven. The prevalence of bacteremia in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients presenting to the emergency department of a tertiary care hospital. This is a question I would never have thought to ask, but shockingly, almost half the patients in this study were found to be bacteremic. It was a prospective single-center study from Iran where patients presenting with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest had two sets of blood cultures drawn in the ED in a sterile manner. About half grew staph, followed by enterococcus and E. coli. ED mortality was 13% higher if bacteremic, but there was no difference in 28-day or in hospital mortality. It also does not appear that antibiotic administration during resuscitation had any effect on outcomes. So now that we have this information, it's not really clear what to do with it or even if there's anything we can. Interesting, though. Yeah. Paper number eight. Feasibility and usefulness of rapid two-channel EEG monitoring for acute CNS disorders in the pediatric emergency department, an observational study. This is a small, single-center study out of Switzerland looking at whether a point-of-care EEG is helpful in evaluating for non-convulsive status in pediatric patients. This point-of-care EEG device has two channels, which is really only four electrodes, and was able to be placed by and interpreted by the emergency clinician after they had some special training. The ED doc was also able to ask for neurology input in the interpretation, which is obviously great. So really the big innovation here is that it's a simple EEG that the doctor can place at any time, day or night, without calling in and waiting for a technician. It was used in 36 kids over a period of three years and found non-compulsive status six times. The methods are really limited, making it hard to know what to do with this data, but the innovation seems cool. The times when I really need to identify non-compulsive status are few and far between, so it doesn't surprise me that it wasn't used that often during the study period. But being able to do this quickly and easily would be amazing. Medical tech seems to be getting smaller and simpler and better, and I like it. Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, soon they're going to have one you can like plug into your iPhone at home and just like... Yep, everyone will have one at home. Right? They'll be like, oh, my kid's seizing. <laughs> what do I do? Boop, boop. Okay. <laughs> Paper number nine. Adverse events associated with electrical cardioversion in patients with acute atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter. The authors led by Ian Steele analyzed data from four multicenter studies to evaluate the safety of electrical cardioversion for patients presenting with AFib and A-flutter. There were about 1,700 patients, 90% of which had a successful cardioversion. 20% had an adverse event, and although only 0.4% were life-threatening, 14% of all the cases required an intervention. The factors associated with more notable adverse events were age greater than 85, coronary artery disease, and use of midazolam or fentanyl. So Jenny, let me get this straight. One out of 10 patients did not convert. 
and one out of five patients had an adverse event, the majority of which had to have some intervention. So remind me again why we're doing this in the ED. <laughs> yeah, the numbers don't sound very good for us. <laughs> right? It's like when you say it like that, it's like, oh, yeah. maybe just, okay. you know, All like, right. you know, just stabilize that rate and to clinic. Move on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Paper number 10, risk for recurrent venous thromboembolism and bleeding with a pixaban compared with rivaroxaban, an analysis of real world data. This paper aims to compare two common DOACs, apixaban and rivaroxaban, when used in patients with a new venous thromboembolism, looking at two important factors, their ability to prevent recurrent VTE and their bleeding risk. To do this, they analyzed a huge data set of claims and clinical information from commercially insured patients in the U.S., and they used propensity score matching and had about 18,000 patients in each group. Overall, they found that apixaban performed much better than rivaroxaban, with a hazard ratio of 0.77 for recurrent VTE and 0.6 for bleeding. This certainly would suggest apixaban is a superior agent. Mike points out that there is an ongoing head-to-head trial that will give us better data for comparing the two, but enrollment for that is scheduled to end in December 2023. So we're going to have to wait for that for the more definitive evidence. In the meantime, I think this is going to make me lean toward apixaban. I discussed it with our ED pharmacist, and she said the pharmacokinetics of apixaban really do make it seem likely that it's more effective. The only downside is that it's a BID instead of daily dosing, so you are going to have to consider your patient's compliance. But I never really had a one reason for picking one or the other before anyway, so I might go with apixaban now. All right. All right. Paper number 11, syncope in pulmonary embolism, a retrospective cohort study. Since the Italian paper that freaked everyone out by claiming that one in six patients presenting with syncope had a PE, there has been a lot of discussion on this matter. Subsequent studies have not supported that statistic, but it doesn't mean we're going to stop talking about it. If you want the details of the original study, listen to the MRAP syncope and PE segment from 2016. This paper flipped the script a bit and looked at a consecutive cohort of patients diagnosed with a PE in the ED. They found that about 10% had syncope. However, it was never the sole presenting problem. The majority of these patients were also hypoxic with shortness of breath or chest pain and had tachycardia and ECG changes. Despite some major problems with this paper, the reassuring element is that if PE is the cause of your patient's syncope, there should be some other sign or symptom to give you a clue. Paper number 12, Conservative Management of Occult Pneumothorax in Mechanically Ventilated Patients. This is a systematic review and meta-analysis looking at mechanically ventilated patients with an occult pneumo who received conservative management for their pneumo, meaning no chest tube or pigtail. They wanted to estimate how often this conservative management failed and the patient went on to develop a tension pneumo or required an intervention. Then they wanted to compare that back to the patients who had the more traditional treatment approach where they had an immediate chest tube. They included 12 studies, but that really only represented around 350 patients. And overall, the conservative management looked pretty good, with only 2.8% of patients developing a pneumothorax and a much lower complication rate of 5.8% versus 19.5% in the traditional group. So, for occult pneumo, meaning small ones you just happen to find on your trauma imaging, not the larger ones you see on the chest x-ray, this seems like it might be a good approach. Yeah, I, you know, and I like those papers where it's less is more, you know? Less is more. 
All right. Well, paper 13, normal saline solution or lactated ringer solution to enhance lactate clearance in septic patients after initial resuscitation in the ED, a retrospective cohort trial. This is a quick take, which in the world of the ultra summary is more like an insta take. (laughs) The authors of this single center study compared normal saline to LR to assess serum lactate clearance in septic patients. They found no difference between the groups although the median fluid administered in both did not exceed a liter. So not a lot of fluid given here, and nothing to write home about. Okay, let's move on. Paper number 14. Single-site sampling versus multi-site sampling for blood cultures, a retrospective clinical study. When drawing blood cultures, traditionally we always get two sets from two different sites, the idea being that we might cut down on the possibility of contamination from skin flora this way. But is that really true? Maybe, rather than decreasing the chances of skin flora contamination, we're actually increasing them because we're doubling the needle pokes, which means double the skin swatches that need to be cleaned. This paper looks at an institution that changed their policy from multi-site to single-site draws for blood cultures. Comparing before and after the change, they found essentially the same number of cultures were drawn, but they had a higher yield of positive results after the switch to a single-site, and the contamination rate was similar before and after. They did an analysis and found that the volume drawn into the culture vials was higher in the single-site cohort, which might explain the higher positive results, since we know that too little a volume can lead to false negatives. This is a study from just a single center, so certainly it's not enough to be practice-changing. I'd like to see a larger study, so perhaps a new culture-collecting method could be coming our way. Yeah, I w- so I'd like to see that. And I'd also like to see the same amount of blood drawn in each, you know, in each bottle. You know, yeah, well, Mike talks about that. And the idea is, you know, if you're having to poke multiple times, maybe one time doesn't flow as well. So you're getting less. But if you get a good flowing poke, can you just get both culture vials from the same thing? It's going to save time. It's going to save pokes. Hmm. Maybe we can. Maybe we can. Paper 15, resource utilization and outcomes among children risk stratified by PARC pediatric appendicitis risk calculator at a tertiary pediatric center. In the low-risk PARC category, around 3% had appendicitis, and in the high-risk category, 97% had appendicitis. The authors point out that rates of resource utilization were high in the low-risk group and that there is room for improvement here. Half had equivocal ultrasounds, 20% got a CT, and almost a quarter of them were hospitalized. They know potential savings in the low-risk group could come from eliminating the initial appendix ultrasound. However, since this is a can't-miss diagnosis, I need to see more data before supporting this approach. Yeah, I agree with you. There's a few things that get you a little bit nervous, and that would be one of them. Right. The ultrasound, you know, it's like, it's not like a risky thing to do. Yes, it's a cost and a time thing, but mm, I'm usually going to get it. (laughs) (laughs) Paper number 16. Design and Implementation of an Agitation Code Response Team in the Emergency Department. Authors here created a multidisciplinary response team for agitated patients in the ED. This team could be activated by anyone caring for an agitated patient, and it included a physician, a lead nurse, a lead security team member, and then backup nurses in security. Then they tracked the use of physical restraints as they rolled out this team. They found that in the pre-team phase, they had a rate of restraint use of 20 out of 1,000 ED patient visits. This started to drop as they started to kind of plan the team and talk about it. And then when they actually rolled out the team, they cut this number all the way down to 10 in 1,000 visits. The methods here are 
limited and it's a single site. And the reduction in restraint use started before the team was even fully deployed. So possibly just the education and increased attention to this issue started to improve the situation. But this looks really effective in this paper. And whether it's the specific team that matters or just a more coordinated physician-led approach, the reduction in restraint use was real, and that is definitely good. Okay, paper 17, Sonographically Occult Abscesses of the Buttock and Perineum in Children. This paper sought to assess the false negative rate of ultrasound in the evaluation of buttock and perineum abscesses in children. It was a retrospective chart review, and the methods leave a bit to be desired. They claim that 28% had a sonographically occult abscess, which seems crazy high. The median age was 23 months, so maybe there were technical difficulties in this particular location for this age. Additionally, the authors defined a sonographically occult abscess as a positive wound culture obtained within 48 hours of the ultrasound, so we don't actually know how many of the wounds were IND'd, since many of us don't send cultures on our abscesses. All in all, something ain't right. Paper number 18, The Impact of Nighttime on First-Pass Success During the Emergent Endotracheal Intubation of Critically Ill Patients. Night shifts can be rough. I mean, we're all tired, right? <laughs> right. We talked about that in great detail. Yes. I mean, that's the theme of the day. But maybe they're so rough that we're actually worse doctors. I don't know. Here, authors looked at whether day versus night impacted first-pass success for intubation. Now, these were intubations not done in the ED or the OR, so that means they were probably ICU or rapid response type intubations. They found significant difference between the patients that required intubation during the day and night, as well as the techniques that were used. Night intubations were more likely to be cardiac arrest codes, night airways were less likely to get a paralytic, and interestingly, the night intubations were more likely to be done by the attending. After making some adjustments for baseline differences between the groups, the odds of first-pass success were lower at night, with an adjusted odds ratio of 0.83, which is interesting since more of these tubes were done by the attending. There are a lot of things confounding this data, the level of training being just one of them, but it is a bit interesting. Hmm. Note to self, do not lose airway at night. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Paper 19. Analysis of time to disposition intervals during early and late parts of an emergency department shift. Out of the 50,000 patients seen by residents in this paper, about two-thirds were evaluated in the first half of the shift and about one-third in the second half. Time to dispo was 3.3 hours in the early part and 2.6 in the latter. None of this is surprising. We come in, rear in a go, head held high, pick up a ton of patients. We hit critical mass and then start trying to dispo them. Towards the end of our shift, we pick up a few, but are focused on cleaning up and honestly, getting home. Have any of us said, well, if I saw this patient six hours ago, I might do this, but now I'm going to do this. Maybe. So, so many factors here, but I do believe the gist of the results. Yeah, definitely a lot of factors there, but it it feels true. (laughs) It feels true. My gut tells me it's true. (laughs) There's a lot of truthiness to it. (laughs) Paper number 20, last but not least, policed patients, how the presence of law enforcement in the emergency department impacts medical care. 
This is a qualitative study in which 20 ED physicians in public emergency departments were interviewed to explore the relationship between law enforcement and medical practice in the ED. These doctors had mixed feelings about the police presence in their departments. The good, they felt safer, they felt that law enforcement could provide useful information, and that generally the law enforcement offers deferred to the medical treating teams. But they also felt like law enforcement could lead to interruptions in medical care and breaches in privacy and confidentiality that could impact both patient trust and ultimately the care the patient received. They also found that physicians did not know what policies or procedures were in place that may allow them to limit the access these officers had to more sensitive patient encounters. Obviously, this is a complicated situation, and we can only glean so much from interviews with 20 doctors. But like Mike, I am really happy to see the situation being discussed in the literature. The better we understand how this plays out in our departments, the better we can create the policies and protocols we need to govern the presence of these law enforcement officers in our departments and to make sure that everyone is safe and well cared for. Well said. And with that, that is the end of our ultra summary. We made it through. Jess, you didn't fall asleep on your microphone. (laughs) What? I did you. We did it. All right. Go have a coffee and we'll see everybody next month. Sounds good. Bye. It's it's time to talk a little natty. Talk a little natty with Ken Milne. It's time for the April time to talk a little nerdy. I'm here with my friend and colleague and EBM guru, Ken Milne. Ken, it is great to be back. Always great to be with you and talking nerdy. Ken, today what we have on tap is something called cluster randomization. Not typically the word that I hear after the word cluster. Yeah, many of us have described the response to COVID-19 as a cluster beep. (laughs) However, this is a different type of cluster. This is a cluster randomized trial. Yeah, cluster randomized trials clearly much different than the cluster F. However, a cluster randomized trial can be its own cluster It's a method that we see being used more and more, but I'm not sure that I completely understand exactly why it's chosen over a traditional randomized control trial. And so to frame today's conversation, we are going to use a cluster randomized trial that Mike and Whitney Johnson discussed back in January 2022 EMA episode. This was a prospective, multi-centered, controlled trial of mobile stroke units The study is otherwise known as the BEST MSU. Let's start really basic. We always like to see that studies are prospective and they're randomized. Ken, why is randomization preferred in our study designs? Well, I'm happy to answer that question about randomization, but I am going to pop back to that idea that, you know, any study design, any method can be done really well or can be done not so well, you know, really poorly. So we encounter this before when we're talking about, oh, we'd like to see an RCT, a randomized control trial, and this is just an observational trial. Uh, You know, an observational trial with robust methods can be really, really good. Just because it's observational doesn't mean you have to do a crappy job and have crappy methods. Just like a randomization trial, if it doesn't have really good randomization or blinding, let's say, you know, it may not be better than a really well done observational trial. So Just want to get that out of the way because you had that little nugget in there about, you know, even cluster trials can be a cluster F. So back to randomization. 
It is one of the most powerful tools of science to mitigate against bias. And of course, you know, when I say bias, I'm talking about something that systematically moves us away from the quote-unquote truth or the best point estimate of an observed effect size. One of the pieces of randomization that's really important is concealing. Concealing within randomization so that people don't know what they are randomized to or the clinicians don't know what their patients were randomized to. We have to really make sure that we blind that group allocation. Absolutely. Randomization addresses one important part of bias. But blinding is also another very important potential source of bias. And you can have single-blinded trials where just the participants are blinded, double-blinded trials where the participants and the clinicians or the investigators are blinded. And then, of course, there's the triple-blinded trial where you have everyone, the participants, the clinicians, and maybe some remote person doing the outcome assessing is also biased. And, you know, another good thing, and I think we've mentioned this before, is it's good to confirm whether the bias was maintained throughout the course of the study. The typical way that we see randomized control trials put together is that you randomize each individual patient. So patient presents, they get randomized. Next patient presents, they get randomized. But there are other ways to do this. You don't have to do it on an individual patient basis. Yeah, you don't. There are different ways to randomize. You can do randomization one-to-one. So it's like even and odds. You can flip a coin. You can have all this sophisticated off-site computerized randomization processes. And then you can have block randomization. And block randomization is where you assign several people into a group. Like you can do blocks of two or four or six or even more before you assign the other group to try to balance things out. And the smaller the block size, the less likely you are to have dun-dun-dun chronological bias. Can we try to tackle one bias at a time? We're talking about cluster randomized trials, and now you're introducing a new concept of chronological bias into this podcast, and you can't just say it and then move on. We have to have at least a brief explanation. What do you mean when you say chronological bias? I was just trying to slide that one by you, because we do talk about bias a lot on this show. So chronological bias can occur when earlier recruited study participants are allocated into one group, and then later participants who are recruited end up being assigned into another group. You know, doing a randomized control trial takes time to recruit participants. It's not like, boom, you have your sample size. Boom, there it is. It can take days, weeks, months, or often years to get your entire cohort to reach your power calculation size. And so there's a potential for differences between those who were recruited early into the study compared to those who were recruited later into the study. And that's chronological bias. And you can mitigate against this by using small block sizes to reduce that bias. However, it's a trade-off. You know, it's a trade-off between that and selection bias, which we've talked about before. I feel like the extreme version of that chronological bias would be a before and after study. So we took uh, three years before this intervention was available. And then we took the three years after it was available. And obviously it's not just the intervention that changes over that time period. And so the treatments that we give patients could change or the patients themselves could change. And so I understand chronological bias in terms of we want to keep it into smaller groups, not I have to randomize 200 patients. So the first hundred are going to be in this one block and the other hundred are going to be in a different block. We really don't want that. We want smaller block size. Let's get from there, understanding that those basics of different approaches to randomization, 
to the actual topic we wanted to get into, which is cluster randomization. What does the cluster part of that phrase mean? So it means that you cluster groups of individuals as a unit, making a number of independent units allocated smaller than the actual number of observations that you're going to have in the study. So cluster randomized trials can have a distinct unit of allocation, of intervention, and of observation. Why would the researcher choose to do a cluster design as opposed to one of the more traditional randomization approaches? Well, I don't think they go into it, you know, hey, this is going to be easier to design and perform. They're often harder to design and perform, even harder to analyze too, but we'll get into that. But like any study design, they have some advantages. So cluster randomized trials have some advantages. One advantage is it can mitigate against contamination between the intervention and the control participants from sharing information. So if you have a treatment and you're only doing that intervention to that group of people, they can't be contaminated to the control group. The control group won't see, oh, hey, why are they getting that treatment and I'm getting something different? So it can mitigate against contamination between the groups because you're exclusively giving that whole cluster the same intervention or control. It can also help with recruitment. It can be less expensive. So if you've got a really expensive intervention, and if you have to assign that intervention to every single investigation site, you're storing a lot of expensive either equipment or medications at all these different sites. And so if you cluster it and, hey, you guys are going to be the intervention and over there, you're the control and we don't have to have all that expensive equipment and treatment stuff, it can be less expensive. And one of the other concepts is that it can be better for a public health intervention. You and I, Swami, we treat patients with an N of one, right? We treat people one at a time. But in public health, they're looking at a larger cohort and they're saying, well, if we do this to this population, a cluster randomized trial can be more efficient. So you can kind of see if you take that idea of the mobile stroke unit and you randomize based on maybe clusters by township or county. Because the stroke unit itself, that mobile stroke unit, is an expensive and a rare resource, right? You can't necessarily have one in every single county and every single town that's ready to go. And so you can see them clustering patients, but then rotating the mobile stroke unit to other places so that, you know, for time period X, it's here. And then for time period Y, it's in a different cluster so that there is randomization done. But some of those resources that are scarce are kind of placed into one area so that it's a little bit cheaper. Is that kind of what you're getting at with some of those advantages? Yeah, yeah. And you're not randomizing to the actual individual. You're, and in this case, they did it by a week. So a week, the MSU, the mobile stroke unit would be coming out of here. And it's really hard to blind people, right? Hey, that truck's a little bigger. Hey, what's the big donut (laughs) in the back? That's a CT scanner. Why is there all these other people on this thing? Why are they taking, you know, and so the contamination issue to mitigate, because obviously uh, they weren't blinding in this uh, study. So yeah, it gets to that, hey, expensive contamination, but you're not actually investigating the individual. You're not randomizing the individual, and that can be one of the downsides. Okay, so we see the advantages, and you just said downsides. Let's talk more about those potential downsides. What are the potential downsides in a cluster randomization trial? Well, this won't be an extensive list or a complete list, but cluster randomized trials can be more difficult to design. You've got to think about how you're going to do this maybe a bit more. You have to analyze them appropriately, and maybe we can get into that. 
it can raise some unique ethical challenges too. Hey, why does that group, why do they have a mobile stroke unit for that week? And it can be more susceptible to bias. But from a statistical standpoint, they're less efficient than an individual randomized control trial because usually we're trying to say, does treatment X help patient A? And if we haven't randomized to patient A, B, and C, but we've randomized to cluster A, B, and C, well, it's less efficient to know, will it affect that individual? Because we're clustering people together. Ken, can we expand a little bit on that less efficiency concept? And, and I know, I know you want to go full nerd, but remember, we don't have a blackboard and uh, your glasses are not taped together. So let's go, let's go half nerd. Let's go half nerd to give a little bit of an idea of this concept of why it can be less efficient in a randomized cluster. Sure. You, you said there'd be no math, so there'll be no math. So you need a larger sample size for cluster randomization trials than an individual RCT. And there's a mathematical formula, which we can put in the show notes for people. But really what it gets down to is, let's say you have a trial that needs 50 people per group in a traditional RCT to yield the same power when performing it as a cluster RCT, you have to increase that number. And it comes out when you plug it into the formula that you need a minimum of at least 110 people to get the same power. Okay, so you're going to need to enroll more patients to give you the same ability to look at those results and then get meaning out of those results, which is interesting. And again, clearly one of the problems with this cluster randomized approach. One of the other pieces that you sent me to read up on with cluster randomized trials really looked at the fact that you need special tools for analysis. You're not going to use necessarily the standard set of methodology and statistical analysis that you do for a randomized control trial. Yeah. For the results of a cluster randomized trial, you need to analyze them using the correct tools, which are better for analyzing a cluster randomized trial. And these tools have to account for the ICC, and that's the intercluster correlation coefficient. And so doing that, you know, I'm not going to get into the details on that. That stuff, I think, is a little bit beyond the scope of what we're trying to achieve today. Ken, let's go back to that best MSU study. The authors sought to determine whether the use of a mobile stroke unit resulted in better outcomes for patients with ischemic strokes. This was a cohort study with a cluster randomized design. Obviously, that's why we're including it in this conversation. Can you explain that design a little bit further in terms of this particular study? Yeah, the best MSU study was a prospective cohort study with cluster randomized deployment weeks and blinded assessment of both the trial entry and clinical outcomes. So what that means is for the intervention, that week they had the mobile stroke unit, which is an ambulance with a CT scanner in the truck, but also in the vehicle, they had a registered nurse, a CT tech, and they either had a real or a virtual vascular neurologist. Now, the control week was just the standard triage and transport using EMS vehicles without the additional people and without the additional CT scanner. And what were the findings they reported in the study? So what they found was for their primary outcome, was patients treated with a mobile stroke unit had a better utility weight modified rank and scale score at 90 days. Now, for a variety of reasons, I'm very skeptical of this result. And again, back when Mike and Whitney reviewed this, they looked at a lot of the different weaknesses in this study. 
And actually, you dove into this on your podcast, The Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine, with our good friend Howie Mel, who obviously knows a thing or two about pre-hospital care. And you guys got into a lot of the issues around that study. People can be referred over to those resources to really get into the nitty-gritty of this study and the weaknesses that are there. And we don't want to get totally bogged down in that because we've done it elsewhere. And instead, I think what would be useful is to go through a quality checklist of items that was proposed by Taljard and Grimshaw in 2014 to look at a cluster randomized trial and say, did they do the best job they possibly could in getting this data and then analyzing it and getting it to us? In that checklist, there are five big items. Of course, it's five because, you know, you're here. So this is your favorite number. It's five things. And here's the question. Did the study authors of Best MSU, did they address those five items? So my answer is yes, no, and unsure uh, to each specific item. (laughs) All right, well, let's get into a little bit more detail then to see where each of those fall. Is there a clear rationale for choosing the cluster randomization approach? Yeah, for a quality checklist, you know, the first thing is, is there a rationale for using this methodology as opposed to why didn't you just do an individual RCT? And so they said it would not be possible to conduct an individual RCT because withholding the MSU, the mobile stroke unit, if it was available to patients, they said that that would be unethical. Of course, this presupposes that the MSU is superior to usual care and equipoise does not exist because to do a study ethically, you know, equipoise is a foundation of that. Now, I don't believe this to be the case. I don't think that they have met the burden of proof that an MSU is superior to standard care based on the available evidence. It's a tough one because you're doing a study to show if the intervention is superior, but you've already assumed that it is in fact superior. That's, that's a tough place to be in. Yeah, no, they a priori, so they presuppose. And, and I think, yeah, I don't agree with that. All right, let's get to number two. Did they consult with a statistician to ensure the sample size calculation and analysis plan were appropriate? that each cluster had the right number of patients in it. Yeah, so they published their protocol in advance, which is excellent, right? It's always nice to see that you put it out there for everybody to say, here's what we plan to do, and then publish, and here's what we did. And the lead author is from a university's Department of Biostatistics, but I'm unsure if they use the appropriate tools to probe the data. They used a chi-squared and a Wilcoxon rank sum test to evaluate baseline differences between the arms for categorical and continuous variables. And for the primary outcome in the BEST MSU trial, they compared groups using a two-sample t-test. However, in this quality checklist that we're talking about, and we'll include a link to that document, the authors did state, quote, standard methods such as t-tests, chi-squared tests, and linear or logistic regression analysis treat observations as independent and will yield p-values that are too low and confidence intervals that are too narrow. All right. So again, that's a a little bit of a problem here when there is a checklist that's out there and it says you shouldn't use these tests and then you use those tests. So that's a little bit of of an issue. And Ken, this is getting a little bit too nerdy for me. I don't quite understand all this stuff, but I trust the checklist. You kind of have to go into this saying, well, I trust the analysis of the methods and what should be there. So we're going to trust those. And the concept I think they're trying to get at is you've clustered these individuals, so you need to analyze them as clusters. 
as opposed to analyzing the individuals within the cluster, right? And I think that's where some bias can creep in because you didn't randomize the individuals and yet you're treating the data points as individual randomizations using these tools. And I think that's the concept that they were trying to get across in that second quality checklist. Uh, gotcha. Actually, that makes, that makes a lot more sense too. Let's get to number three in that checklist. You have to consider the risks of baseline imbalances and if necessary, account for them in the design. Yeah. And there were some baseline differences in the MSU study, and they did consider and adjust for these imbalances in the study to try to mitigate and minimize this type of bias. Right. No matter how good a job you do with randomization, there may be some imbalances. And I think it's important that they addressed it. They took it head on and said, hey, these are here. There's nothing we could have done about the fact that they are here, but let's see how that actually feeds into our data analysis. Our number four on the list adhere to the Ottawa recommendations for the ethical design and conduct of cluster randomized trials. Yeah. So when I was looking through this checklist, I went back and they did not explicitly state that they followed the Ottawa recommendation. And then I go to the PDF and I type in Ottawa or the lead author for the Ottawa recommendations. And I couldn't find that reference in the published protocol or the final published manuscript. It may be there. I just didn't see it. Yeah. It doesn't mean it wasn't done, but we don't know. We don't have that information and we would like to have that information. Well, it's nice if it's explicit and we don't have to hunt for it. Right, exactly. It should be easy for us to find, right? That's the ideal. And that gets into a whole other thing that, that we should get into at another time, which is when information is hidden in the supplement that nobody is ever going to read except for us because we have nothing better to do. All right, let's get to number five, Ken, on this checklist. Did they adhere to the reporting guidelines set out in the consort extension to cluster randomized trials? So I think we've talked about consort statements before. And it has been updated and modified as an extension to address the issue of cluster randomized trials. And this was by Campbell et al. in the BMJ 2012. And I'm going to say no, because the very first part of the extension to cluster randomization trial guidelines is that the title of the paper is to include the term cluster, which they didn't do. Right. And now, again, I'm going to steel man them and say, well, maybe it wasn't their fault. Maybe it was in the original submission. Maybe, you know, reviewer number two said remove that or the editor of the journal. But however it happened, it certainly doesn't apply to this part. And it's the first part of the quality checklist for the consort guidelines for cluster randomized trials. And that would be a whole nother podcast to get into the consort checklist and whether they did all of the things that were on that checklist, on the basic checklist there. We don't need to get into all of that. And, and Ken, you know, we don't want to totally beat up on the authors here either, because you and I both know it is hard to design studies. It's hard to conduct studies. It's hard to do the analysis and it's hard to get them published in a medical journal. All of these steps are difficult and it's important for them to be done so that we get the best information that we can get. Now, at the end of this all, Ken, how did they compare with other published cluster randomized trials? Yeah, I'm really glad you said something about how hard it is to do research. It is hard, okay? And we're not here to bash on the authors. But, you know, these authors, when they're publishing this manuscript, they're in good company because we found a couple of publications that looked at cluster randomized studies and looked at how they did in reporting their basic methodology requirements. And looking at 300 cluster trials, uh, they found they were a bit of a cluster F, depending on how you define that term. Only 
half reported a sample size calculation. 61% accounted for that ICC in the calculation. Again, just barely over half used stratification or some other design feature to balance baseline characteristics. And then 70% accounted for the ICC in their analysis. So it just shows that there's a gap and we as a research community and a publishing, you know, if you're a peer reviewer or working for a journal, we can do better. I think that's a good take-home message overall, Ken, that we kind of come back to over and over again, that we can and we should do better and we expect better. And more importantly, Ken, it's not about you and me. Our patients deserve better. They deserve the best that they can get. It's great to think, well, a mobile stroke unit's great. Let's get that stroke unit and all those people out to the patient. But we have to show a benefit when we talk about the fact that this is a zero-sum game. If I put a couple million bucks into a mobile stroke unit, it's a couple million bucks that I'm not putting into something else. So we need the best information to best care for our patients and advocate for what our hospital should have. If it's true that a mobile stroke unit is the best way to get the best recovery, then we should be advocating for those units to be available to our patients wherever they can be. But we don't really know that that's the truth, and we don't have the data. And what we deserve and what our patients deserve, as we said, is to have the highest quality data to give us that answer. And unfortunately, I don't think that the best MSU trial does that. More importantly, though, Ken, because that's not what we're here for. We're not here to say that the study wasn't good or that that's not the right treatment. What we're really here to do is to give a better idea of what these words mean when we're reading trials. When people go back and they see the words cluster randomized, what that means, how that study was done, and then the weaknesses or the strengths that could be inherent in that article that helps us to develop our perspective on whether that intervention is useful or not. And I think we've done that here. And I think this is a good podcast to go back and listen to again and to use when you find one of those articles. You're like, okay, I see cluster randomized. I know we talked about this on EMA. Let me go back. Let me listen to that. And then let me read the article so I have a good concept of it. And it definitely was helpful for me because we have reviewed a couple of cluster randomized trials in our journal club at my institution. And that question came up. What's a cluster randomized trial? And we did a little bit of hand waving and stuff. And I said, wait till April. I'll have the answer for you then. So uh, now all of my residents will actually have the answer to that question, which is a really good one. Yeah, it's nice to have some tools to investigate and probe the literature for its validity. And we've talked about observational trials, systematic reviews, randomized trials. And now you've got another checklist with some tools to investigate and think, hmm, did they actually prove what they said they were going to prove? And is it a high quality cluster randomized trial? So I really do hope that this uh, helps people. Now we went into the weeds a bit and there is some math involved. I think next time we should get a bit more philosophical and, and we've got a, a show coming up with Chris Carpenter who suggested us doing a show about billions of dollars that have been donated through volunteers to help the research publication industry. So we can pull back and talk philosophical after we've been in the weeds. Perfect. And, and you guys can't see the video, but uh, Ken did not put quotation marks around the word billions, but he did put quotation marks around the words volunteered. So let's uh, get into that because <laughs> I think this is a really good topic for us to understand. And uh, Ken, until May, until next time when we're back together, remember everyone to stay nerdy. And be skeptical. And so it has been said after it was written. April, it's a thing of the past, April EMA. Now, I, I we can immediately, we can immediately, literally, we stopped the recording 
we open our computers and we start working on May. That's how, that's how this goes. It's Especially like, since we are a couple days late in this one. So we got to get on it. You got to get out. No. Most haste, my friend. That, you know what's funny is I wish I was working on EMA today. That's not no, what I'm No, you're working in Armed. Yeah, I'm doing the docket triage shift shortly after this recording. And we use I'm the like, word dock loosely when Sanjay's out there. It's more the, the, it's the, focus the plant at Risa, in recess. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's a beautiful day outside today, actually. It's yeah. a, like kind of freakishly warm February here in Southern California. I know some parts of the country are like buried in snow. Oh, yeah. No, it's like right 75 degrees. We're like talking about doing a cool day this week. You know, that's sort of what we're so at. Bad. But uh, appreciate everybody who stuck around all the way to the end. Yeah, I do too. Um, I hope you learned something. And um, if you didn't, I hope you're able to stay classy. You better stay classy. Everyone, stay classy. But stay classy first. Then stay classy again. Nailed it. <laughs>